At 11 pay more at the grocer, but getting less will tell you how to get the most. The fuck are you doing? Chapter in the Adventures of the Starship Enterprise. Cannot hold full power on Fort Field. Systems overloading, Captain. Spock. William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy. I offer my services as science officer. Take you beyond the galaxy. Warp speed now. Star Trek, the motion picture. Next. their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. Then transfer out! Freak! Come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Cheap, lying, no good, rotten, fork flushing, low life, snake licking, dirt eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood sucking, dog kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat ass, bug eyed, stiff legged, spotty legged. And now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. No, blah, blah, blah. Hello and welcome to Two True Freaks. I am Scott Gardner. And I'm Chris Honeywell. And this is our second Movie Month Marathon Special, Star Trek Edition. In this episode, we give some love to the much maligned and sadly far, far, far underappreciated first Star Trek film, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the Director's Edition, the one that's uh, available on a two-disc DVD. That's the one that we uh, have recently rewatched, and that's the one that uh, I think we agree that that's our favorite version, so that's the one yeah. that we're going to mostly be talking about. I think, actually, that that one is the, the, the Director's Edition is sort of the definitive version. It rarely is with those sort of things, but this is actually the ideal version of the movie to watch. Right. Yeah, I get the, I get the feeling, definitely, that this was the, the Director's ultimate baby. You know, this was, this was the way he, he had originally envisioned it, and now technology had caught up. Similar to a certain degree with with what Lucas was trying to do with with his special edition things, but this is far superior and so much better pulled off, I think. 
Before we get into this, you want to just kind of give our own personal histories with uh, with this movie? I saw this actually when it came out in the, in the movie theater. I don't think I saw it opening night, but I saw it as soon as I possibly could from when it came out because I was eagerly awaiting it. Because even as a rabid Star Wars fan, I'd been a big Star Trek lover before that. So I'd been waiting and hearing about the movie and the new TV series or whatever was going to happen. So when the movie finally happened, I was just psyched. And I, I think when I saw it, I was a little bit disappointed in the whole thing. It was maybe a little long and slow. Maybe I was sort of suffering from Star Wars damage. But it was only on subsequent viewings over the years that I really started picking up on how good of a movie it was and how subtle and you know, it was cerebral. It was, it's the only really cerebral Star Trek movie there is, and it works on all levels as a, as a science fiction film. So now when I watch it, I savor every moment of it. It doesn't feel overly long or, or slow to me. It's, I enjoy it like that. It's majestic. I, I think that's a great word to use in conjunction with this because there's so much of this movie that fits that word i think majestic right from from jerry goldsmith's awesome awesome score to the the beauty shots of the enterprise and the and the slow pans of the ship in space dock and going to warp speed for the first time and stuff there's just so many moments of this movie that 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 word is what comes to my mind is majestic what's funny for me is uh Sadly, I've never seen this one on the big screen, and of all of them, this is the one that I really, really would love to see on the big screen. I, I kind of discovered this one in a weird way because, you know, I remember watching Star Trek as a kid because, you know, my older uncles were really into Star Trek and everything, but I, I wouldn't say I was ever a fan or knowledgeable or anything like that. It was just another show that was on TV that I, I probably caught moments of. I really got, I became a Star Trek fan officially when Star Trek II came to HBO. Of course, being on HBO, they played it to death. Well, I really just fell in love with that one and really got into Star Trek through that movie. Uh huh. And so the only people of any Trek knowledge that I knew personally were you and my, my uncles and stuff. And I remember asking, well, you know, if that's Star Trek 2, what is Star Trek 1? And just being told basically, well, that one sucks. You know, and that was pretty much what, that was everybody's opinion that I knew. Well, that one sucks. Without really saying anything specific about it. Uh, other than, you know, they might have said, well, it was long and boring or something like that. Right. But I didn't know anything about it. But just on their, their reaction, I never, I just never really got around to watching it until I, I'm pretty sure the first time I ever saw it was with you. I think we rented it from like Mike's that Mike's Quick Stop or right, something like right. that, and we went back to your house. This is when you lived, you know, over kind of near the school in, in Carthage, and I remember watching it and thinking it was a little long and it was a little slow, but I didn't hate it like I thought I would. I mean, I really by by what had been built up in my mind by everybody telling me that they didn't like it, I I had built it up that it was really terrible. And I remember walking away from it thinking, it's different, and it is a little slow, but I really got something weird out of it. But it was like, like you say, it was the subsequent viewings, and it was the subsequent rewatches. And, you know, I worked in video for a long, long time 
when video sales were, were in its infancy, you know, when it was really a novel idea to buy and own right. a movie on videotape. And Star Trek movies were a nice little safe thing that you could throw in in the video store and play. And, you know, there's, for the most part, there's no offensive language or, you know, there's definitely no nudity or not any real strong violence or anything. So Star Trek was one of the few things where you could watch the entire franchise. You know, you could put those movies on and play them all day long and nobody's going to complain. Right, right. And it was really, it was by, you know, Star Trek, the motion picture is the longest one of all the movies. So to keep myself from having to keep changing the tape every hour and a half to two hours, I just put that one in and let it run for, you know, that movie's what, two and a half to three hours long. And I'd play the long version. And I just, through that process, fell in love with the first movie. You know, especially at that time, it was the longer TV version with all the extra footage in it, and I just really fell in love with it. And slowly over the years, it has beat out the other five original cast movies to, to ultimately emerge as my favorite for just a number of different reasons. And you know we'll, we'll get into that a little bit as the as the show goes along. But that's my personal history with this one. So where do you want to go from here? You just want to kind of get into the movie itself? Yeah, I think we should just sort of. Uh go through it and uh, go through our, our notes upon watching it. I just watched it over the last two days, so it's fresh, freshy fresh in my head. Ah, yeah. Yeah, I watched it again. Uh, you know, I've seen it a million times, but the, yeah, me too. the director's edition, you know, the one that we're really going to be talking about, I've only ever seen just a few times. My, my The one I'm ultimately most familiar with is that longer TV edition. But I love this director's edition. I, I did just rewatch it a couple of days ago and, and took a bunch of fresh notes. So we'll kind of half and half review the, you know, go in order and tell the story, but also just kind of cover whatever notes we took or whatever. But right off the bat, this is the only Star Trek movie with an overture. You know, it actually starts out with Ilea's theme. And the original, at least the way I've ever seen, I don't know how it was presented in the theater, but on original videotape, it was just a black screen, you know, and you'd hear the overture and then it would go into the movie. Well, now with the director's edition, you've got a star field that you see, you know, while it plays the overture. Yeah, I don't remember what it was when I saw it like that. I have a feeling that probably most of us skip it, but I, I, I usually skip it only because I listen to the soundtrack all the time anyway. But uh, it's still cool just that it has an overture like an old-fashioned movie. You know, a lot of movies back in the day had an overture before the main... You know, it's almost like the cartoon before the movie. And I think that's neat. I think that really adds to the the majesty. You know, there's that word again. I think it just adds to the majesty of what an event this movie must have been in the theater, you know, to have an overture before it. I noticed that for this director's edition that they've redone the titles with the actual Star Trek, gold Star Trek font and all that. And right off the bat, the the sound is fantastic. Because I always thought the the original sound of this movie was a little muddy. It was before the really nice Dolby sound or the really crisp, clear surround sound. And they've gone back in and really cleaned it up. And the score sounds fantastic. The, The sound effects and... Just the general sound of the whole movie is really, really good. Of course, there's the the Goldsmith theme, you know, that later kind of got mutated and became the Next Generation theme. But his original theme in this still just stirs me. I mean, I really like Goldsmith's theme for this, and this is 
by far, in my opinion, his best score. I really like this uh, this Goldsmith score for the for the whole movie. You know, just all the experimental instruments and experimental sound, and, and the, it's a nice blend between a classic mu- movie score and something experimental, like say Planet of the Apes. I think it's a beautiful blend of the two. And traditional, old school Trek music from the TV show too. Yeah, I think this one uses more of that than than any other big screen Trek we ever got. You know, all of them use the da 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 da, but you know, he used he used it for like the the little captain's log sequences you know because there's several captain's logs in this movie that sound like they could be right out of the tv show with the music that he uses in the background and i love that you know i really really like that and i i miss that being in more of the other movies so right off the bat you know the movie starts out with this weird looking cloud thing moving through space and we see the klingons three klingon battle cruisers attack it and this is the first time we see, you know, the new enhanced Klingon ships. And we see the Klingons, you know, the new turtle heads. They've had several different nicknames, but I always kind of like the, the turtle heads. Yeah, I don't uh, remember what they're supposed name. to be called now. Yeah. <laughs> There's like, what is it? Uh, somebody said they were like peanut butter. You got the crunchy and you got the smooth or something. Right. I, thought, I thought that was <laughs> funny. But uh, yeah, the, they really look weird, though. They almost look almost like old time world war ii like racial parodies you know because they all look the same they're all kind of have those like buck snaggle teeth and grease really grease, look funny weird greasy hair and they're just kind of yeah. like all vicious and yeah but that was sort of like the tv series it's just sort of the updated ramped up version of the tv series mm-hmm. and they're only in there for a we few get, minutes uh, and and they immediately their immediate downfall is, you know, they just, they see this, which I think this is a tactical error by Klingons who are warlike, but at the same time should know when they're, when they come up to something the size of Viger that probably the first thing they shouldn't do is fire fo- photon torpedoes at it, you know? <laughs> it's the old monster movie syndrome. Hey, it's a giant monster. Let's shoot at it and piss it off. They you shoot know? at it and then go evasive <laughs> and then they turn around and like, they're going to get away from this thing that's humongous. that dwarfs them. So, it's, so that was a little weird, but they had to illustrate the, the danger of, of V'ger. And you got to see the Klingon. Uh, here's a little bit ships. of... Oh, yeah. Well, a little bit of trivia. Um, the Klingon commander is uh, Mark Leonard, the guy, you know, same guy who played Spock's father. Uh-huh. And played the Romulan commander the first time we see the Romulans in Balance of Terror. Now, at that time, with this movie, Mark Leonard held the record for the the most uh, alien races played with playing both a, a Romulan Klingon and uh, and a Vulcan. Of course, that record would be blown out of the water later on by later Star Trek actors and different series and stuff. But at, you know, at this time, you know that was quite the the feat for him to have played all three different alien races. So, you know, the Klingons are quick, you know, they, they fire photons and everything into the cloud, doesn't do anything, and the cloud ends up sending out little energy balls that basically de-res them and store them kind of Tron style, even though, you know, Tron was a few years in the future, kind of stores them as data inside of itself, and the, and the cloud moves on. All of this is witnessed by the Epsilon 9 station, a Federation outpost. Now, the guy that we see on the Epsilon 9 station, the commander... 
I don't know what the actor's name is, but he's the same actor that was supposed to play Zahn if this had been the proposed uh, Star Trek Phase 2 TV series. I always thought that was kind of neat that they actually yeah. managed to work him in, even if it is just a little bit part. Now, I get a kick out of the fact that the girl tells him that V'ger, you know, the cloud, is on a precise heading for Earth because I'm, I've always wondered, now, how the hell can they determine that? They don't even know that there's a solid object at the center of the cloud at this point because Spock comments on that thing, you know, on that later. And this thing, no matter what version of this you're watching, one version says it's 82 AUs in diameter, one says it's 2 AUs in diameter, but no matter what version you're watching, the thing is fucking ginormous. So how do they know that it's on a precise heading for Earth? Because Earth, compared to this thing, is, you know, puny. It's it's a... Yeah, so that seems a little bit weird to me, a little bit odd. Maybe precise well, from there, the we, uh, we they should have used, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's on a general, general heading. heading toward the soul system. Yeah, something like that. It's toward that arm of the galaxy or whatever. And then we cut to the planet Vulcan... And this is one of the coolest aspects for me of the director's edition is there's a whole new, I, I, I'll call it a mat for lack of a better term. It's not They're not really using mats anymore by this point. It's all digital and everything, but they've totally updated and changed the scene, the scenery of the planet Vulcan in this part. You know, Spock is back on his home planet of Vulcan. He's undergoing the Culinear ritual, which is supposed to purge his human half, essentially. He wants to attain perfect Vulcan logic and and be without emotions. And it always drove me nuts that in the original version, he would look up into the sky and shield his eyes, and you could see a shadow fall across his face when he put his hand in front of him. Yet when the perspective changed to show what he was looking at, it was a nighttime view of these like moons and planets in the sky. And I'm like, well, what the hell is the light that he's protecting his eyes from? Well, in this one, they've, they've changed it, and it, it looks much cooler and more alien. But it also it just falls more in line with what you think a, a desert planet like Vulcan you know, should really look like and what the, what the sky should be and all that. And I, I know that one thing that used to drive Trekkers nuts was the fact that you know, in the original version, Spock would look in the, the sky and see what looked to be moons. But Uhura had a line in uh, one of the early episodes. I forget exactly which one it was. Might have been Man Trap, I forget. Tell me how your planet Vulcan looks on a lazy evening when the moon is full. Vulcan has no moon, Miss Uhura. I'm not surprised, Mr. Spock. Trekkers love to seize on little things like that, but they did. You know, they seized on that line and used it as another weapon against this movie, basically. You know, another another thing where they didn't like something that, that had happened with this movie. Well, now it's fixed. All right, so anyway, this scene wraps up with Spock on Vulcan with him. Basically, he fails the Kalinar. The, the One of the teachers, one of the elders, detects that he's sensing a presence from space which is stirring his human half basically and, and, and engaging his emotions and so he ends up failing the Kulinar and uh, 
it's implied that he's going to have to go out into space and, and confront this thing. Well, he's he's sensing he's sensing the pre- presence of Viger, and I can only assume that somehow Viger is stirring him or speaking to him on a is speaking to his human side is so something's happening with his human side where he's thinking I'm going to have to use my human side in fixing whatever this is what you know in understanding whatever this is going on and how can I accept the Kulinar if I still have that tie to my emotions so that's why I think he refuses it that's why I think he does the whole dramatic wait till the last second and then throw his hand up wait I am not worthy right and then they dramatically throw, you know, his necklace down on the ground. No necklace for you, Spock. <laughs> so from there, after uh, Spock fails the Colinar, we have a, a nice cut to a really you know, nice, dramatic, total change of scene. We cut to Earth, and we see this uh, shuttlecraft, you know, goes flying past the Golden Gate Bridge and all that, and it lands in Starfleet headquarters on Earth in San Francisco. And I just got to say, I I love, you know, this is what I love about especially like 70s movies that project the future is, you know, everything just has my favorite version of of projecting what the future is going to look like. And so the inside of Starfleet headquarters is this concourse where the shuttlecraft lands. It looks a lot like the inside of like the contemporary resort at Disney World or something. It's really cool. You know, the shuttlecraft lands and the door pops open and Kirk... James T. Kirk, he looks awesome in this movie. I, now, I think most of the cast, and I'll say most of them because I'll, I'll point out later on some of the ones that I don't think look at the top of their game. <laughs> right. But I think most of the cast looks great in this. I, you know, that they, they're fit and they're still young for the most part and they look really, really good. But Kirk in particular is just great. You know, well, gone is the gut. The first look I got at Scotty, I was like, whoa, look at Doohan. He's he's so skinny there, you know. He he blimped up like yep. f- the fastest of all of them. But he was pretty he mm-hmm. was still relatively trim in this one. He was a little meatier than he was on the TV show, but you know, he was still yeah, they were in that weird transition between the movies and the TV show. Well, you know, one of the big criticisms against this movie that, that both the actors and the fans complained about were the uniforms. I happen to love the uniforms in this movie, especially Kirk's. Now, Kirk's admiral uniform, the uniform that we see him in when we when we see him for the first time in this, I think it's awesome. It's my favorite Star Trek uniform of, of any movie or any series. I just think it looks sharp. I think he looks so cool in it. But also, even the other ones, the ones that look, you know, like, like Jimmy Doohan's outfit that we see, you know, Scotty's outfit that we see him in for the first time when he takes Kirk over to the ship. Even that one that's kind of the space pajamas, as a lot of people like to call it. I like that because, man, to wear something like that, you've got to be fit. 
if if Duan had had some weight on him, if he'd have had the beer gut or whatever that he gets later on, yeah, he would. It would have like, looked really awkward and uncomfortable, you know. Yeah, he would have looked like one of those old like hair rockers from the eighties who's still trying to squeeze into their spandex. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, yeah exactly. I, I think exactly. the actors hated those costumes because I they probably weren't very comfortable and hard to get into and out of, and that's why I think they hated them. They were just like. They looked good, but they were designed really poorly, and they probably had trouble taking a leak, you know, with with them. So it was probably a whole right. production. So they went on record as hating them. <laughs> now, I mean, I'll grant you that. Say, I don't know what they're called, but say that the regular standard day duty uniform, like the one that Scotty's wearing the first time we see him, I'll grant you that that's not the keenest look because it it is all one color. It is very, you know, the bottom half of it, with the with the boots and the and the pants being all one unit, it does very much look like footy pajamas. So I'll grant you that. But I'm talking like Kirk's admiral outfit, and even the the outfit he wears later that is basically just the t-shirt. I just think it looks odd. And somebody like Shatner, who was really in trim for this movie, he looks great. I mean, I, I like all his uniforms through this. You know, even later when he's got the the same blue uniform that Scotty's got, he looks really good. It, it's just, it, it's all about. You know, I, I really think that with these particular uniforms, these guys had to be in shape. You know, they couldn't let themselves go because then you would see it. You know, much like the uh, the next gen guys, much later on, would say the same thing. You know, with their original first season uniforms. That were very much space pajamas, I and mean, they 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 couldn't gain weight because it would show. I think that's something that got lost later on because by the later movies, man, they were all oh, yeah. kind of pudgy in their uniforms. Oh yeah, they were making you know girdles for Shatner out of space age plastics just to contain his you know meaty paunch. <laughs> so uh, Kirk. You know, he has a little moment with uh, with the new the guy who's going to be the replacement science officer, and then he beams up to space dock. He can't beam straight to the Enterprise because there's a problem with the uh, with the transporter. So he beams to space dock, which I'll just note that for the for the next movie for Star Trek Two, they flipped the space dock model over, and it became the regular one space station for the for the next movie. I always thought that was a clever reuse of. Um, model work there so kirk takes the uh, well actually scotty takes kirk over to the enterprise via shuttle and i always got a kick out of the fact i I forget where i read this it was probably in the book for encounter at farpoint you know the novelization but somewhere it established the irony of the fact that kirk actually started something of of a tradition where it became traditional for the captains of the Enterprise to go to the Enterprise via shuttle pod. But it actually started out of necessity because Kirk couldn't beam straight to the ship. There was something screwed up with the transporter. So I, I got a kick out of that. I thought that was a nice little irony, you know, the way they played it off. Yeah. And, you know, then there's all those, uh, you know, those beautiful shots of Scotty taking... Kirk over to the Enterprise and we see the Enterprise for the first time and all that and I just I think it's great again this is a criticism I've heard a lot that it's it's a long scene and you know that it's boring and blah 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 but this was the first time the Enterprise was on the big screen it was an event it was it had to be 
just awesome to have grown up and, and loved this and cherished this right. on TV and then sit in that theater and boom, see that new, sleek, very futuristic looking Enterprise up on the big screen. So I think you've got to forgive some of the eccentricities of the director or whatever in, in really having the long scenes and all that with this. Cause I, I think it works in the music in that part is just I mean it's beautiful it really is the whole I, I enjoy that whole scene I think the whole thing is really well done it's it's very majestic and, and it's moving but in short I, I really what impresses me about especially this sequence of the movie with the new Enterprise and all is the world of Trek per se is so much more futuristic and, and, and science fiction in this film a up and above all the other ones. I just really feel like this one feels truly like it could be 23rd century. You know, the, the technology seems to really be more advanced and just the whole look of everything. The sets are bigger and brighter. And as cool as the, the world of Star Trek is later on, you know, in the future movies and, and the future TV shows and everything... I don't know if it's just the, the fact that they had this massive budget to work with or what, but this one, I mean, don't you really get the feel that this one just seems more futuristic than oh, all the yeah. other ones? That was consciously so. It was bringing it from the small screen to the big screen. Right. So they blew it all up. They expanded the universe to fit the big screen, and here's what the franchise is hopefully going to play out into. I mean, that's just, it's another one of those things that lends into me loving this movie so much above the other ones is that there's a lot of stuff that we see only in this one. Kirk goes to the bridge. There's that shot of the guy that's standing on the little floaty, you know, thing that's, that's right, helping. Right, the little work. platform. Yeah, the little anti-grav platform. When Kirk first comes aboard, he's walking through the hallways and there's a guy that, uh, I call it the Han Solo and Carbonite scene, where the guy's got the little handle on a little floating platform that goes by, and it, it does. It looks like he's one of the Bespin guards with, with Han Solo on the thing. With, you know, you almost expect to see Boba Fett behind the guy. Or something. It's, it, it's hilarious every time I see it, because it really is the same angle, the same kind of little floating bed as in as in Empire. It, it, I think it's cool. But there's, there's all kinds of stuff. The communicators being on their wrists. You know, they've got yep. the, the bio things on their belts and all yep. that. I, I, I like all that stuff. You know, the, the new stations and the new readouts and all of it. I like all the tech. They've got a lot more techno jargon in this one. You know, it seems like they, they talk a lot more and have a lot more almost like submarine lingo. You know, when they're yeah. doing anything from, from moving the ship to fighting the enemy or whatever, they've got so much more. And a lot, a lot of that stuff like gets... Like the Navy. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And a lot of that stuff just kind of falls by the wayside after this movie. And I miss that. I, I like that. You know, I mean, I'm not so crazy about it being militaristic. I know that that's not what Roddenberry was going for. But I just, I like that owing back to the nautical. And I think that this movie really does that with the way that the ship operates. And then, of course, this is the part of the movie where we meet Will Decker, the the new captain of the Enterprise. You know, and immediately he gets <laughs> demoted back to commander, and he's you know he gets relegated to first officer status because you now now Kirk's back on the scene, and Kirk's going to be the one to take the ship out to confront this cloud and everything. Yeah, he's Re not too happy about it either. No, he's pretty pissed. Now, this guy, 
This guy always cracks me up because I like this actor whose name I'm totally blanking on at the moment. Collins, Stephen Collins, is that his name? I think that's I think that's right. Now he goes on to uh, the the only other thing I really remember for he was in the Man from Snowy River and I remember he was on that show I could not watch that uh, Seventh Heaven. My wife used to watch that show, and his wife on that show is the marine biologist woman from Star Trek Four. Oh, that's funny. So yeah, I think that's cool. You got the mother and father are both Star Trek, you know, alumni. That so. girl always reminds me of sort of a proto Riker. Yes, very much I so. I think yeah. his character was just sort of turned into Riker. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very similar looking, and you know, you could almost see him growing a beard, you know, at some point. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I kind of wish he had to. I liked Decker. I really, I, I think part of it owes into the fact, you know, Stephen Collins is just a likable guy. Everything you see him in, you know, he's never a jerk or anything. He's he just comes off as like the well, all American guy. You I know? think they also wrote, wrote his character to be a recurring character. If I'm, I think he might have been potentially a character for the Phase Two or whatever. So, and he was used as his ultimate fate takes him away from the show pretty much in this movie but right yeah i think he was supposed to be like a like a a young kirk uh, yeah like a young kirk like a kirk protege type yeah. of thing somebody kirk was going to take under his wing to to uh almost like an apprenticeship or something like that yeah, yeah. it would have been interesting to see it really would have cuz i liked him I, I liked his character and i liked him you know the actor so it would have been interesting to see that and you know, you watch that that first scene and some of the first interactions of Riker and Deanna Troy in Encounter uh, at Farpoint, and it's wow! It's mirrors the interactions of Decker and Ilea in this movie. I mean, it wasn't it was all intentional, but it, I mean, it's so intentional and, and done so closely that it almost feels like the same exact scene twice in yeah. two different shows. Well, there's a great shot in this where uh, Scotty goes to the warp core and all that, and you you see the new engine room and the new warp core and all that for the first time. And it's a great shot, and it's a great effect, you know, the multi-layered warp engines and all that. I saw Jimmy doing at a convention one time in Syracuse when I was a kid, and he was talking about... I can't remember his overall feelings on this movie as a whole, but I, I specifically recall him talking about this. And he was so thrilled to go from the kind of less-than-cool-looking engine room, you know, less-than-futuristic, let's right. say, engine room on the original series, to this that looked like, wow, this could really get the job done. He, he thought that was really cool. And it does, too. It looks very futuristic and... You know, just the fact that the, the angle shot that we are given as the viewer really looks like you're looking down several stories. You know, like you're looking right yeah, down in the guts of the ship. Glowing, boiling gases in the pipes and stuff like that. All that yeah. fun stuff. Love it. I, I really like that. It looks very futuristic. Doesn't look at all like a brewery or uh, you know your <laughs> local sewer or anything like that. Kirk confronts Decker and basically tells him he's taking over pisses decker off he runs upstairs and cries and then there's a a great scene i love the look that scotty gives kirk this kind of like i don't know it's it's a strange look like he's he's almost sad for decker and a little bit mad at kirk but he's also he's he's more than anything he's just uncomfortable yeah with having witnessed the exchange between 
Kirk and Decker, you know, something that he probably shouldn't have happened in front of him being... Well, because Decker says something like, well, you know, I'll take as good a care, you know, as Carver and Scotty knew what was coming. He knew, and he was just like, oh, geez, awkward, okay. And then he just gets out of there, you know. He's pretty much makes his excuse to get the hell out of there because he knows what's coming. (laughs) Well, then uh, I love the part where... (laughs) The panel right next to Scott, you know, there's the, there's that guy that's standing there working at that panel. And this poor guy seems like he's just always in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh-huh. The panel just kind of explodes and there's this shower of sparks and everything. The guy jumps back and has a total like, I didn't do nothing. Look on his face. You know, he's holding his hands up and everything like, oh, shit. Scotty and Kirk go running out because the, the panel that just exploded had something to do with a transporter with yeah, the transporter's in mid-beam at this point, and they're trying to beam aboard the new science officer, the, the full Vulcan science officer. And now in the novelization, this the other person is a woman that the book pretty much portrays her as like Kirk's wife or ex-wife or somebody that was filling like a wife-style relationship in Kirk's life during the time prior to when this book takes, you know, sometime between the end of the original series and when this story is taking place. So this was actually somebody that was important to Kirk. And none of that is really played up here. But watching this movie over and over over the years, I've noticed that Kirk does subtly seem like this really bothers him. And I remember reading different criticisms that say that he doesn't seem very torn up, but I think he does. He does the choked up do the official, you know, inform their families and all that, but you can tell he's choked up while he does it. Right. Although it is pretty intense to have the people beamed up all deformed and then end up back in Starfleet as whatever they were, just a mass of flesh. Starfleet, do you have them? Enterprise. Whatever it is, Silly didn't live very long, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, I know it's not very nice to say, but whew, Yeoman Rand aged, man. She's got some serious mileage on her at this point. Now, she's the transporter chief now. I mean, it was nice to see so many of the of the original players that they were able to get back. I mean, this was the movie that not only did you get, you know, your standard Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and then, you know, the other... Scotty and them, but you also got Rand was back, Nurse Chapel was back as Dr. Chapel and stuff. I, I love that angle of this, but uh, I-, I said I would point out the ones that I didn't think that this was their best showing, and Rand unfortunately is one of them. She, uh, she actually looks better in a couple of the later movies when we see her than she does in this one, I think. She just... Ooh, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the makeup job or the uniform or, or what, but she looks like she aged. Not doing it for you, huh? Yeah, she aged like 30 years while everybody else aged like 10 years. I mean, she really looks rough, I think. Sorry about that, Grace Lee Whitney, but you just uh, kind of look rough this one, honey. Sorry. Captain, look at my legs. Something you could have done, Rat. 
So we get one of my favorite scenes in the movie right after this. Uh, Kirk has uh, everybody assembled. The entire crew assembles on the wreck deck. And I love to see, I would love to see this on the big screen because that's one of the problems with me watching it on my, whatever the size my TV is, you know, 25, 32 inches, whatever the hell it is, is that I, I, I know that this scene is chock full more than any other Star Trek it's chock full of aliens and and just all kinds of like uh, you know yep. there's like Native Americans with their headdresses on and all these really cool outfits and it's a it's the most diverse assemblage we ever get in Star Trek and it's hard to appreciate all it dots if you don't when have you yeah, it on TV. yeah exactly you know you get it you do get a couple really nice shots of of all the people that are there now i know that there's a lot of famous people in that crowd too and i'll be damned if i can think of any of them off the top of my head i think dc fontana may be one of them i know there's some other people in there too but it's been a while since i've looked that information up and i just don't remember off the top of my head somebody will biblio mike or somebody will tell us about who the other ones in I know that there's a bunch. And this is the famous scene where, in this particular version, the guy, uh, the commander of Epsilon 9, his his, uh, line is changed from it being, from V'ger being over 82 AUs in diameter to being 2 AUs. Now, an AU is an astronomical unit, which, if I remember correctly, is roughly the distance between the Earth and the Sun, I think. So even two AUs is fucking huge. But 82? I mean, the thing wouldn't even fit into the solar system, would it? Well, they would start thinking about it as, yeah, a solar system or a stellar mass or something. Instead of, you know, a unit, it would be a cloud or something. Yeah, two just makes more sense. Yeah, it does. It really does. It, it's a it's a minor quibble. I mean, it doesn't really bother me, but I, I don't like when things are changed like that. Only because once I, again, it, when somebody wrote it in the first place, they probably didn't think anybody would notice, or they didn't know what an AU was, or just right. you know. <laughs> what I like about this version is that it's really it's it's the best of three worlds. Really, it's the best moments of. The original version of it, it's a, the, the theatrical version of this movie, but it's its tightened up a little bit. There's a, a little bit of superfluous stuff cut out. But it also incorporates some things that were exclusive to the special longer TV version. You know, some of that stuff winds up in here. But like I say, it's tightened up. It, I think it feels like it plays a little, a little more smoothly. And it also feels like it plays a little faster. At least to me, maybe it's just because I've seen it so many times. I don't know, but I think it's just more engaging. So it, it seems it there isn't it, when people are staring in awe in this one. It isn't as awkward anymore because when you see right. it, it's <laughs> awesome. You know, so it, the improvements on the director's edition have actually made the movie and the characters more engaging. So you're when you're wrapped up in the story more, the time goes by faster. You don't care that it's. If you're enjoying yourself, why do you care if it's going on longer than a movie usually does? Right. You're having fun. Unfortunately, one of the one of the cuts that happened, and then there's not, there's really not a lot of cuts. I mean, most of the cuts are, are minor little things, you know, maybe an extra angle shot or some weird little thing that was kind of awkward to begin with. But one one sacrifice that's made that I do kind of miss is. Uh, 
at the end of the the rec deck scene, you know, after they've witnessed the Epsilon 9 station get absorbed by V'ger, everybody's shocked. You know, the music is very dun-dun-dun kind of moment and everything. And Kirk orders the view screen turned off and Uhura just stands there. Shortly after that, we're introduced to uh, the new navigator, who is uh, Lieutenant Ilea, the, the bald Delton woman. Now, what what is your take on Ilea? I, like, when, when I first saw this in the theater, I didn't like her. I thought she was very just bland. She was, it was kind of weird because bald-headed women were, you didn't see as many as you do today, you know. She was sort of the first version of Sinead O'Connor to come out, but... <laughs> But, you know, so she looked kind of freaky and she was kind of hot. But at the same time, I thought that maybe she was speaking English as a second language or something. And maybe that's yeah. why she had that sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator delivery even before she was a robot. I think she's Indian, if I remember correctly. I'm so, pretty sure. So, and so her delivery just seemed kind of just stilted a little bit so I wasn't a big fan of her and it works a little better now I guess watching it but now don't Deltons have some sort aren't they very sexual creatures or something like that or they're they have some sort of yeah it was basically my limited understanding and I'm just going to be crude about it and not to beat around the bush but I think the thing was is that they could basically fuck you to death was that their their standout feature as an alien rather than having pointed ears or (laughs) strength is that they were basically like super sex machines sex machines well yeah they were like not sex machines necessarily but like they they, you know whereas Vulcans had refined logic these people had basically refined sex right you know what I mean they were like they were like perfect sexual I don't know. I'm talking so Decker about had a little bit of that. Got a little little yeah. something of that. All right. Well, that's, you know, he, he, may have it. he may he may not have because there's a great moment where I don't know that it's in this version, but I know it's in the special longer version where when she comes a- aboard, there's an awkward moment where Kirk says something to her about having confidence in her, and then he leaves the bridge, and Decker says to her. You know, I'm sure the captain didn't mean anything personal. And she goes, I would never take advantage of a sexually immature species. You can assure him that's true, can't you? And he has this look like, did you have to say that in front of everybody else? <laughs> so it almost makes it seem like maybe he hadn't gotten some of that, but he had wanted to. Or uh-huh. You know, it's just an awkward scene. Well, then he gets his chance, yeah. So that, yeah. Would, that would make sense that his motivation was just like, well... Now or never. Sadly, if I remember, you know, again, other than rewatching this movie in preparation for this, you know, in, in the spirit of our show, we're doing this shit very much off the top of our heads, just what we can remember and stuff like that. Right. But if my memory serves, I'm pretty sure she was killed in a car accident, and I don't think it was that many years after this movie. It might have been within just a couple years after this movie, but. Right. Anyway, sadly, I'm, I'm pretty sure she's she's no longer with us, which is, is sad. While I don't think that she's exactly s- spectacular as Ilea, I mean, she seemed like a really nice person, and she, she did seem like she had her heart in the role, whether it was that great of a performance or not. Right. But 
just kind of sad that she's well actually a lot of these people aren't around anymore. yeah right that's, that's that's really sad when you think about it but her in particular just the fact that she you know she died young and tragically and all that anyway moving on one of the best parts of the entire movie is the rest of the new uh crew and the replacement crew and everybody beams up to the ship except there's one that's refusing to step into the transporter so kirk decides to take matters into his own hands and he storms down to the transporter room and orders them to beam up that new crew member now and there's a materialization sequence and straight from the local disco comes Dr. McCoy, beard and all. I it's love like the, the disco from the woods. He's like yeah. Grizzly Adams at the disco. <laughs> He's in his disco jumpsuit with this wild and woolly beard. That big and, medallion he's got. It looks yeah. like he's off of the ISIS TV show, but he's got that great big medallion and his hairy-ass old man scrawny chest. And It's fun. It's like Grizzly Adams meets John Travolta meets my grandfather. It's, right. it's like, what it just doesn't fit together are... right. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it is. I mean, Three you ever great go, like, tastes that don't go great yeah. together. You ever like take an old person shopping and they wear some outfit that totally fucking embarrasses you? That's what this look is on Dr. McCoy like, dude, seriously, you're not wearing that out of the house, uh, are you? Yeah. You, yeah that's... Do, you, do you think you're going to meet some girls? <laughs> <laughs> So he comes aboard, and they have a little moment with Kirk and everything. I'm doing just the quick and dirty run. I'm assuming that most everybody's seen this, and if you haven't, right. well, Wikipedia. It. It. So yeah. I'm not going to go super in-depth on this review. I'm just kind of going in order of my notes. So the old crew, for the most part, is reassembled, and uh, they decide, all right, they've got to, you know, Kirk's pushing everybody. They've got to get to this thing while it still is, you know, a couple of days away, and you know, he's worried about them intercepting and everything. So despite Scotty's warnings and everything, Kirk orders warp speed. They've got to get there. So they go into warp speed. And I just got to say, best warp effect ever. The The warp effect in this movie is just great. The, the rainbow thing. And I know it looks a lot like those goofy glasses that we used to have when we were kids. You know those glasses I, I'm talking about where you'd oh, wear yeah. them? Yeah, and it would the, give the, the rainbow, rainbow diffraction glasses. Yeah. But it's still awesome. I love the Enterprise from this movie going to warp and it does the rainbow thing. I, I think it's cool. Call me corny or whatever, but I think it's awesome. It's just, it's so much better than the just streak and the little flash at the end like we would get on like all the other TV shows and stuff. That to me just looks really it for one it looks unrealistic. It just I don't know. It looks like a video effect. Even the best effects that we got, you know, in the later series like Voyager and Enterprise and stuff, even with those great digital effects, that sequence still looks like crap to me without the rainbow thing or without anything. But in this one, it looks awesome. Just kind of streaks and stretches out and has that rainbow thing. It just looks great. This is where they have the big, uh, what do you call it, the the wormhole. They go into the wormhole thing seems like that concept really changed a lot as far as exactly what the hell a wormhole is and all that. I almost wish they'd call this like a time warp or something different than than calling it a wormhole because it's way different than wormholes that we would see later on in the show. Right, right. But I I hated this sequence when I was a kid. When I saw it in the theater, I thought it was so stupid and the slow motion and stuff 
But I like it now. I think it works pretty good there. I like it in this version because I think they tightened it up a lot. They they seem to downplay a little bit more of the, uh, you know, that weird stretchy effect, and the voices aren't quite as distorted. And it seems like the time lag. I don't know. It, 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 I don't know what they did to it, but it, it's not as uncomfortable as it was before, and I like that. Right. We get to see the photon get fired, and that, you know, and we we get a sense of how strong the photons really are supposed to be. You know, when it blows up that asteroid and all that, I think that's really cool. I like that whole that whole sequence is pretty neat. The only uh, weapons fire that we get in the whole movie, really, but it's pretty cool. I noticed that they changed the sound effect just slightly, but I used to love the sound effect of the photon in all the other versions because it was the same sound the photon would make in that Star Trek arcade game that we used to play. Right. It was the same sound effects. So I thought that was pretty awesome. So, you know, they, they finally managed to get out of the wormhole. And again, another just favorite scene of mine is uh, a, a Federation long-range shuttle docks with the Enterprise and you know somebody's coming aboard and i i've always wondered seeing this in the theater for the first time was there really a mystery about who this would be or whatever i i've always kind of wondered that did people get it right away what was going on but anyway right it docks and check off you know he's for some reason he's in a weird capacity in this movie he's like chief of security or something but he still looks like he's like 14 so it's kind of strange to me that he would be in charge of such a important position plus he's just he's a little guy you know he's not like war for somebody who's big and menacing he's like a scrawny little davy jones looking dude so it, it seems kind of strange but anyway he goes down to see what the deal is with this shuttle and of course it's mr spock comes aboard and the music i, I can't describe it but it's just the the way the music and the and the direction works in this when Spock walks onto that bridge and there's that little just that little trill of music and everybody turns around and Kirk just has that reaction just Spock Spock I love that moment it's it's one of my favorite Star Trek moments of of any movie I really like that I love that he blows everybody off. <laughs> he's he's almost kind of an asshole, you know. They're all so happy right. and, and shocked and thrilled to see him, and he just kind of looks around like oh, assholes again, you know. <laughs> he's got a great delivery, like he just he's so over these people at this. It's it's really cool. I, I really like that. What do you think of that scene? Well, yeah, it was very it was very awkward. Again, it's something I remember not registering that well when on the original viewings, but it's great now because Spock has to really... He's been working to get away from his whole human stuff, which these people have indulged him, you know, you know, surrounded him by, and now he's back around him, and he's just like, oh, and he's trying to be just like logical about it but immediately Kirk's they just start wearing him down Kirk and McCoy just start like hey 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 until he starts he resumes his relationship with the, the old dynamic right. they have to poke him and prod him a little bit and work him back into that because he's been so he was just that close to purging himself of humans and here he is right back in the middle of them and two of the most like humany humans you could ever hang around with <laughs> and so it takes a little bit of uh, adjustment and I, 
I'm glad they showed it instead of just automatically. It's, it's a good 10 minutes later before he's sort of back in the uniform and got his hair cropped again, and it's just like Spock is back. And Nimoy pulls it off perfectly, you know, he's back, you know, he's he carries himself like the old. It's just awesome. I really like it. I, I like it too because to me, now whether this is intentional or not is is almost inconsequential to me. I almost see a, a real life parallel between Spock's reaction or, or lack of reaction to being reunited with all these people and their feelings and reactions to him as Nimoy's real life feelings and, and everything to even being in this movie because he really didn't to, to what I've ever heard didn't he wasn't really crazy about coming back right. to do Spock again it was almost begrudgingly that he came back to do it so even when I'm watching this movie and as into it as I am there's always that little side of me that's also very much seeing Nimoy not Spock looking at these guys going fuck you guys again you know I gotta I gotta deal with you guys and I love it I, it just it works for me on on so many internal Star Trek levels but also that that one external level of Nimoy's uncomfortableness with with being back in Star Trek again I, and it works for me I really like that scene a lot on on so many different levels and I mean I wonder how many different ways you could really play that scene you know I mean I, I think that's the perfect way to have done it to where he just really didn't have any reaction right I think it's like great. a Vulcan. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I can't remember where it was, but I've got down here in my notes that there's a Wilhelm scream that's newly dubbed in. I have that. It's at the one minute and sixteen second mark. It's in engineering when that first V'ger bolt hits him and something that's blows right. up. That's right. Yay! Engineering status report. Systems overloading. That's right. That's what it was. You're right. Yeah, it was the weird, you know. Yeah, well, I've got uh, Wilhelm scream dubbed in, and then I've got We're Under Attack deleted. Yeah, there was a part that I always really liked. It was one of the, the, the added parts for the TV version where Ahura is, you know, at her station, and she's talking to, I guess, Starfleet, and just frantically basically yelling into the console you know this is the starship enterprise we're under attack and there's something about the way she delivered that line that i really liked i mean she her voice really sounded frantic like you know you hardly ever hear these guys panic or really break under pressure but somehow she sounded really freaked out you know like like they were in you know mortal danger starfleet do you read this is the enterprise we are under attack well when they hit when they hit the wormhole, you see, you notice that, that Kirk sits down and he takes out his little lap weird seatbelt thing and puts it on. <laughs> I love that thing. He just sort of like whoop, tucks right into it. It's like his space diaper or something, you know, just like strap yourself in. Cutting ahead quite a bit, there's the scene where Kirk and Decker actually have several confrontations, both on the bridge and off, but they have a, a confrontation of sorts before the probe that steals Ilea comes aboard, and there's the moment where he says that moving into the cloud is a is a unwarranted gamble, and Kirk's like, well, you know, how do you define unwarranted? 
And then not long after that, there's the part where that pillar of light or whatever comes aboard and zaps everybody, and then it steals Ilea away. Right. Right after that part, Decker has his little outburst. You know, this is how I define unwarranted. And then the camera is is panned at kind of a weird... Decker's almost out of the, the panel. But if you watch him, it's hilarious. I, I caught this for the first time in this version. There's a security guard at the far left-hand part of the screen. Right. <laughs> and Decker gives him a total get-the-hell-out-of-here hand gesture like, you useless fuck. And he just makes this hand gesture like, just just get off my bridge. If you watch, it's hysterical. I'd never caught it before. And the guy actually seems to hang his head and watch <laughs> it in the circle. It's hilarious. I, I highly recommend that if, if you've got this movie, check that scene out. It'll crack you up because the guy really does look like, well, all right. Like he just kind of moseys off the bridge. It's really, really funny. I always get yelled at. <laughs> I didn't do nothing. It is. It's very funny. Now, the replacement navigator that comes up uh, a little bit later, Chief DeFalco, that was actually Shatner's wife at the time. Marcy, I think her name was Marcy Shatner. I don't know what her huh. I what never her knew that maiden name or what her name is now, or if she's if she's even still around. I don't even know. But I actually saw them together, Shatner and his wife. This wife on uh, do you remember Tattletales with Burt Condy? Sure. Yeah, they were on there together. Aye, aye, aye. Saw it on uh, I don't know Game Show Network or it's something. Probably like on that. YouTube so, now somewhere. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I forget what other celebrity couples they were with, but yeah, it was the two of them. Shatner looking very, uh, very much like Kirk from this. Probably right around the time of this yeah, movie. Yeah, sure. Actually. Yeah. It would have had to yeah. have been. Okay, here's my biggest nitpick for this movie. This this one, every time I watch this movie, I just roll my eyes and I'm, I'm always tempted to throw something at the screen. All right, everybody makes such a big deal about Spock, right? Being like super genius brainiac, right? You know, there's that great scene in Star Trek Four where he's got, you know, several computers are all talking to him at once and he's taking that quiz and nailing all the questions. So, you know, we've we've got it drilled into us that Spock is brilliant and he comes up with all these brilliant logical deductions and he's got a brilliant logical mind and blah blah blah, right? Okay, there's a part in the movie where, where Kirk asks him about, you know, what's in there, or what what do you think, or something to that effect, and he says I believe the closed orifice leads to another chamber. Which is the fucking stupidest line I've ever heard. That's like saying, hey, I think that door leads into another room. Right. It's like, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, that's the that's the best you can tell me. I think that door goes somewhere. It's like that line in Ghostbusters, you know, where they say, hey, where's those stairs go? Oh, they go up. Right, <laughs> it's like, right. It's, it's a total, like, duh... Right, well, especially to the guy who's got the psychic link to V'ger. <laughs> right. You know, it's <laughs> kind of vague. I mean, just because he says orifice and chamber just yeah. doesn't change the fact that he's saying, I believe that closed door leads to another room. It's like, wow. Yeah. Well, that- just saying orifice triggers the <laughs> Beavis and Butthead reflex, you know, the. <laughs> <laughs> Chamber to the orifice. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Oh, makes sense. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a clunker. Sure. (laughs) So, jumping way ahead in the movie, 
you know, they finally make their way into the inner workings of V'ger, and uh, Spock melds with V'ger, and you know, they get a little insight. Kirk bluffs V'ger and V'ger's probe into getting access to the inner workings of V'ger itself. And there's a beautiful sequence where they leave. They actually leave the Enterprise via the the saucer section. They walk right out onto the saucer. Love that part. Yeah. New CGI in there. They go to the main brain complex thing. Very hexagonal and very weird alien-looking shape type of thing. Where they meet the actual Voyager 6 probe. And that's you know the, the whole secret behind this whole thing. But what I'm getting at is, again, the criticisms about this movie that it doesn't feel like Star Trek and it's not or, enough like the old shows. Or, or it was already done in the old shows. It was too right. much like the old shows. Yeah. You know, but I think this movie has, of all the other movies, I think this one has one of those moments that's right out of the old TV show, which is Kirk versus Computer. Right. Now, granted, he doesn't talk uh, V'ger into killing itself, but how many episodes did we see where it was Kirk using well, Kirk logic to right. get a computer to do what he wanted it to do, well, whether see, it kill itself or stop what it was doing or whatever? And that's the magic of this, because it's still all about Kirk, and that's why they lived through it. The, there's, a, there's a reference at some point where somebody's kind of pissed off that Kirk took over, and Uhura says, hey, look, our chances of survival probably just doubled you know right and uh and there's a reason for that and when they enter into v'ger kirk reacts differently than anybody he doesn't right. react in a martial or defensive way or a passive way he acts in a, in a way to use the enterprise to communicate intelligence enough right. to make v'ger curious enough to engage with him and then once he engages, you know, all it takes is for him to figure out, oh, V'ger's a child, and then he can just start working his Kirk magic. You know, from that point on, he's 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 working that computer because yeah, that's that's one of his specialties <laughs> besides right. the ladies is making computers give up <laughs> or at least <laughs> uh, give in or at least or even self destruct. <laughs> But yeah, it, yeah, it's a classic. It's just a way to have an argument, you know. It's a way in the story that Kirk can represent one point of view, and it's always the point of view of being human and what the merit of being human is, what the good points of being human beings are, despite all the terrible things that human beings are. Also, I'll, I'll admit that I'm not the most observant movie viewer you know a, a lot of times little continuity things and little errors or whatever that other people catch I I, I seldom right. catch that kind of shit but in this one there's actually one that I watched on one of my subsequent million rewatches of this movie that I'm very proud of that I caught because it's such a minor little thing but you know after they go and they meet V'ger and he uh, you know Decker basically sacrifices himself to merge with V'ger and, and allow it to evolve into a new life form and all that. They all go back to the ship and they're all on the bridge and you know they're kind of thankful that everything's all over and kind of patting themselves on the back. And there's a great shot where Kirk's back in the command chair and 
Spock and McCoy are still wearing their their landing party jackets, right? The, you know, the new right. beige jackets that they've got. And they're standing there and they have a little conversation. Scotty comes to the bridge and he says to Spock, you know, something about having him back on Vulcan in a couple of days. And then the perspective changes and Kirk says, Mr. Sulu, ahead warp one. Now between those two scenes, if you look at Spock and McCoy and they're, they're wearing their jackets. And then as soon as that scene changes just slightly to Kirk in the command chair, Spock and McCoy have actually switched jackets. I think Spock's is supposed to be... I think Spock's is orange and McCoy's is green or something like that, but when the that scene changes, they've got the wrong colors Oops. on. Such a minor little thing, but I'm just so proud of myself that I actually spotted that. I, I filmed on different days. Yep, the exactly. continuity person wasn't on their game. Yep. It's just it's neat to get that little insight to realize that wow you know there there must have been a, enough time between this moment and that moment that right. they could actually stop change jackets or whatever go to lunch come back and you never would have known it if it weren't for that yeah. little gaffe I think that's cool I, I like seeing stuff like that weeks and, and uh, months could have gone by now I've got to say I I think this ending. I really do think it's the best ending of all the treks. It's it's it, most like the TV show. Yeah, it's it, it it is a lot like the TV show. You know, the ones that would end on kind of a positive note. You know, where there was the 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 music would come up and it'd be kind of a you know a, a thrill of the music, and then it would go to the the closing music. And this movie does that very much. So you know, the music builds up. And there's a little message at the end, and then it's it. It goes straight into the fanfare, and I, it's great. You know, it just—it's such a positive, upbeat ending. Yeah, well, and it's got the whole over there that away too, with just a yeah. classical Kirk piece of humor. I think that's a lot of what lends into my really enjoying this movie. Is even above and beyond the content of the movie itself, is that feeling of okay, they're back. And there's such bigger and better things laying ahead for them, you know. Now that you know they're they're going off that away, you know, to see what's yeah. out there. It's like a whole new series of adventures await them. I like that. I like that ending. It ends very much on a on an upbeat. Okay, let's let's go off to the next whatever five year yeah, mission. Yeah, like the TV next. show. Yeah, very much so. Next episode. I, I love it. I really do. I want to say go to our forum. And I'm going to post a thread about this episode. And in that thread, I'll post a link to a website where you can go and download a free commentary podcast with the crew that worked on this special um, Director's Edition DVD. It's really fun to listen to, and they really give a lot of insight into all the work that they did on this. I discovered this just totally by accident. Not long after I bought this uh, this DVD, and it's just really interesting to hear you know the things the guys have got to say. They love this movie, and uh, they've they've really got a lot of positive things, and they really talk up the the strength and the beauty of the uh, the Goldsmith score that you know that's running through the whole thing, and uh, well worth your time to give it a listen to. It's uh, it's really done as a straight DVD commentary, but you can do it. You know, you can listen to it 
along with the movie, or you can listen to it just as a almost like a podcast episode. So it's really worth your time, and uh, and I'll have that link up on our forum. What's your uh, what's your closing thoughts on this one? Well, I just think this movie's got short shrift, and especially in light of the 2009 movie, a lot of people have been just like, well, hey, you know, this one won't have a lot of people talking at conference tables or looking out the view view screen at big clouds and stuff like that, but you know what? I like looking out the view screen at big clouds, especially in this <laughs> one. And, you know, I'll be I'll watch it many, many times over after this, uh, and I've watched it many times before, and it just keeps getting better every time. It really isn't da- as dated as it really could be for a, a 70s movie. There's some 70s right. damage in it, but for the most part, it's aged really well as a science fiction movie. Uh, I Better than all, a lot of the other ones. Yeah, I think so too. I'll definitely echo that sentiment that I, I think... I think it owes a lot to like you know like we said at the beginning. I think this one just came right out of the gate with a very advanced futuristic feel to it, and I do think it holds up very well. And there there are you know there's at least one other you know in the in the series of six movies with the classic crew. There's at least one of them that I think doesn't hold up near as well as this one, age wise. I think it looks very dated, whereas this one, I don't think it does. You know, like you say, you know, right. there's a little bit with the hairstyles and stuff, but overall, yeah, I think this one, I think it just looks fantastic. I, I like the whole futuristic look of it. I, I know that, it, uh, you know, I, I've really, really gone on about how much I love this one, but this episode was really intended to be somewhat of a love letter to this movie, because like you say, it just it really gets ripped on. I mean, you can go anywhere on the internet and find plenty of, of hate and disses for this movie. But I really wanted this episode to be different and really focus on the positive of what I think stands out about this particular movie. And, and I really hope that that came through. Oh, I Uh, think it did. And I'm looking forward to the next part where we're going to have two other Trek movie lovers joining us for some touching upon whatever subjects we didn't touch upon in this first part, which are many. For you parents who don't speak Klingonese, he's saying people of Earth unite and bring your kids to McDonald's for a Star Trek meal. That's a regular hamburger, fries, soft drink, a McDonald's and cookie sampler, and a Star Trek prize. Oh, yes, five different boxes based on Star Trek The Motion Picture. Action scenes, jokes, games. He says, take it from a father who knows. His kids love him. McDonald's Star Trek meal available for your kids now. Libya updates. Details at midnight. Okay, now we get into the group discussion portion of the show. Please welcome to the show Luke, known as El Giacone on the CGS forums. He is the creator of the Hawkman blog, beingcarterhall.blogspot, which is the daily devotional to the winged wonder. And also, please welcome back to the show high-energy guest freak extraordinaire Chris Gallo, (laughs) known as Webhead on the CGS boards. Both of these fellas are Star Trek The Motion Picture fans, and it is our pleasure to have them here tonight. Say hello, fellas. Hello, fellas. Hey, how's it going out there, guys? (laughs) 
<laughs> we are so happy to have you guys here tonight. So Star Trek, the motion picture. Now I'm just going to kind of go one at a time here. We'll start with uh, we'll start with Luke since he's uh, the first timer here. Uh, how did you uh, discover this movie and just your general uh, overview thoughts on it? Uh, okay, I actually have a, a pretty strong memory of the first time I saw Star Trek the motion picture. I grew up in New York, and you ask anyone from New York, and they know Channel 11, WPIX, which is yeah. oh, yeah. forever. And they showed Star Trek reruns as far back, literally as far back as I can remember. And I remember watching Star Trek with my father and my brother on Saturday nights on WPIX. Uh, and then one day, jeez, uh, I'm not sure exactly what year it was, but... You know, it was a Saturday, we had gone out, my dad had gone to the health club, and then we'd gone to the mall, and we came back, we ate lunch, and wrestling was over, and, and we were playing for a bit, and then my dad was just surfing around the TV, and we came upon Star Trek The Motion Picture, and and I had never seen it before, and so we left it on, and I remember watching from about, about two-thirds of the movie there with my dad on a Saturday afternoon on Channel 11 with commercials and everything else, and... So I just remember at the time that it looked so different from what I knew about Star Trek from watching the old show. And that, you know, between Ilea and how crazy she looked and all the stuff with the blaster board and all that the sound effects and effects, it just made a real impression on me so that as I got older, I kept coming back to it, watching it again and again. And eventually, when I got the uh, special edition VHS set, watching the extended TV cut and then the new director's cut. I just keep coming back to it over and over as I've grown up and become more of a Star Trek fan. And uh, to me, the reason why Star Trek The Motion Picture is such a favorite of mine is it's a true science fiction film. It's about exploration of space, knowing what is out there and knowing your place amongst it, which really gets to the heart of what Roddenberry's vision was for Star Trek. This was about knowing your place in the cosmos and knowing that even something as small and insignificant as a single human could have such a great effect on so many things around it and so many worlds and so so much uh, so many beings throughout the throughout the cosmos and that really that stuck with me as being true to what Roddenberry wanted to say and and just makes for just interesting compelling viewing excellent yeah excellent. i couldn't have said it better myself absolutely yeah. Chris, how did you discover the first movie, and what are your uh, general overview thoughts on it? Well, um, I guess I'm a little bit older than Luke there, because <laughs> I remember seeing this when it came out in the theaters. Yeah, I wasn't alive when it came out in the theaters. I will say only by six months. I was born in 1980, so this, this just beat me out. Oh, you're a post-Star Wars baby. Oh, oh yeah. he's got no cred. <laughs> I know. <laughs> can't hang with us. <laughs> You can go back. Come back later. <laughs> I tease. I tease. I, well, I, I wondered if any of the four of us would have uh, would have actually seen this uh, in the theater because I I did not. Which well, I did also. Well, I remember seeing it in the theater. I was 14 years old, and um, I like like Luke here. I've seen all the all the original shows and repeats, and you know I I was a Star Trek geek from day one, from the moment I first saw it, and just when I had heard about this coming out, I remember. I like there was nothing that was going to prevent me from seeing this. So went with a couple of friends. We rode our bikes down to a local theater. wasn't the biggest one, but they were playing it. And I remember sitting there, and couldn't even touch my popcorn. I was just watching it, just in total awe. And I, 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 if anybody ever gets a chance to see this movie on the big screen, this is the way it's meant to be. This movie is so cinematic. I mean, it's just like incredible and. 
I, and, and just like what um, Luke was saying, you know, this is the this is the sci-fi Star Trek film. This is the one that just really just is reminds you of the, those first few that first season of Star Trek, the way it was meant to be. You know, what the uh, NBC people thought was too cerebral. You know, they, we can't have this. This is the stuff that I liked, and like I said, I just I've loved it since day one. And I know we and we also discussed about this how this was sort of an unpopular opinion to like this movie. That so many people bash it, say you know it's this and that, and, and I know, and it's and I've always defended this movie. You know, it's just something about it. Um, I just like I said, I can just remember sitting there just being total awe and just like not talking during the movie, not thinking about my soda or my popcorn, just just watching and walking out of that movie and just I felt like I had totally saw Star Trek for the first time again. I just fell in love with the whole franchise again. It was just incredible. It's it's funny because I was a couple years younger than you, so I must have been 12 when when I saw it. And I was kind of disappointed, I remember. It was I remember I don't know what I expected from it. Maybe it was because it was so different, but I enjoyed it, but I was oddly disappointed. And then as the years went by and I'd watch it more and more, it just grew on me and grew on me until now when I watch it, I savor every moment of it. You know, I a lot of people make the comment that there's a lot of scenes of people just staring and reacting in this. Reaction shots, yeah. And there are. There's a lot of them, but it merits what is happening in the story, merits that reaction. To have any other kind of reaction would have been, wouldn't have made sense in the context of the story. So I don't see, I think what happened with this movie is it wasn't, you know, it was considered a flop, even though it made money. Even though it was actually a, a... moneymaker nine dollars this made a lot of money right and mm-hmm. but it was it was seen as a flop yeah but i mean adjusted for inflation critically they made upwards of 250 mil mm-hmm. which is amazing for a star trek movie you know before this year right mm-hmm. and um it's funny it was back in those days i think there was a much bigger rift i'm not sure what the word is i'm searching for but there was a, a, a lot bigger emphasis put on critical success versus financial success, which I honestly don't think that that's really the case anymore. I think a movie can come out and everybody and their brother can say it sucks, but if it's the biggest movie in the world, then it's going to get sequels and a franchise. Right. Whereas this came out was a, was a financial success, but a critical bomb. And it really, it affected the, the Star Trek franchise forevermore, you know, as far as uh, definitely as far as the films go, they well, they never did get a contract because of this movie. Each movie was basically done as if it was going to be the last movie. So I, I think well, that that's significant with this. I, I think another thing, this is something I perceived also as a kid, was that there was some Star Wars damage. They'd been yeah, working I was getting, yeah, and I was battling over too. this movie forever. They were battling over getting this movie done forever and battling with Roddenberry and all the struggles is it going to be a tv show is it going to be a movie and then when it finally got made star wars had already come out and star wars had ships flying and you know on every axis and you know was crazy action and moved at a really good clip at all times and people were sort of maybe counting on star trek to either top that or whatever which is unrealistic for star trek because that's not what star trek's about but I think that's what a lot of people were expecting an experience like like Jaws or Star Wars or something like that. And what they got was a classic director 
directing a big classic epic movie so it's moves at that pace it's like the titanic it's like the enterprise it's a big majestic right thing with big majestic themes and the the sort of basis of the the characters being able to reconnect with each other because they have a problem <laughs> you know to hmm. overcome well that was one of the things i i you actually covered a couple things i, I had in my notes to talk Oops. about which was first of all robert wise as the choice of director and i like what you say about this being very much a classic feel to it classically directed because i think for this particular movie robert wise is the perfect choice of director because i wonder if people remember that he directed what arguably was the greatest science fiction movie ever made up to that time, which was The Day the Earth Stood Still. Right. So I think he's just the perfect director for this Star Trek movie, which, like we've said, this, this was the one that was high-concept science fiction. I think that's the thing that garners all the criticism this movie gets is because it is a little bit more heady, and it's mm-hmm. not your slam-bam action this is very much the cage whereas the other ones are very much where no man has gone before i think that's the big distinction if you you know if you want to draw an original series first season parallel there what what do you guys think on that i i agree with that because like, like we said that this is a kind of a, a I, I hate to use the term but a true science fiction story it's uh it's you know my, my favorite line in this film is Says, Why is any object we don't understand always called a thing? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it's true because it, it's about something that is out there that we don't understand and we're learning something. It's not about, oh, we got, you know, a, a, a genetically altered Superman with a plastic chest coming to kill us. We've got to have a dog fight <laughs> here. And, and again, nothing nothing against Wrath of Khan, but it's a, it's a, different, it's a different film. And Completely and different. Really, the earlier point about critical success versus financial success. I think you uh, hit the nail on the head just this summer with Transformers 2. Did that mm-hmm. movie get any positive reviews anywhere? Not that and, I saw. Yeah. I mean, and, it, and, it, and it's made, I mean, it, it's in the top 10 old, like, uh, historic grosses now all time. So I think in the, in, in the 70s, after Jaws, it started to change a little bit, but I think it was still prevalent at this point in the 70s that budgets had not yet begun to truly skyrocket. And for a film to be a financial success, was relatively common because films were, were it was still relatively cheap to make a feature film on, a, on an overall scale. The marginal cost of making a bigger film was much bigger, as we see with Star Trek: The Motion Picture and The Black Hole and 1941 and all these other late 70s epics that were all considered flops. Well, arguably, uh, they were still the primary source of escapism too. This was before the big boom of video games and. And, you know, I mean, there was television was there, but this was before HBO and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely can see that. Yeah. And, and so that, it's, like you say, it was, it was a true form of escapism. And this was when Jaws was the game changer in 75 to yeah. push all this towards the blockbusters. But I think at that point we were, we were still kind of learning how, what a blockbuster was. You got it in, in 75 besides Jaws. You also remember you have Airport 1975. You have Earthquake. And yeah. Towering Inferno. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, so the, 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 the idea of a spectacle movie and a big epic popcorn movie was—they they were still in its in its genesis. Really, it was starting to come into its own. Right. And and you're right. I think by the time 1979 comes around, the motion picture 
compares disfavorably in most viewers, contemporary viewers' eyes, with Star Wars. And and I always lump the black hole in there too because to me they're they're similar in in certain aspects, and including that both the motion picture and the black hole started production before Star Wars, but were released after, it. and both suffered uh, negative comparisons with Star Wars because of it. Right. Even though they were they were at totally different goals and aims, just being they were... you know your big summer or in their case winter, they both came out in the in the winter sci-fi epics compares negatively to arguably a film that's not even a science fiction film with Star Wars. Right, and they were they were both Star Trek and, and the Black Hole were very similar and they were big sort of almost gothic right you know, dark deep space science fiction and slow moving too, you know, or they moved yeah. at a slower pace, at a more classic movie pace and a more classic movie style. Well now that I'm older and I'm much more of a of a Disney fanatic and, and really have tried to make an effort to, to watch at least the Disney films that Walt Disney actually had a hand in uh-huh. while he was living, I very much now can see that the black hole is 20,000 leagues under the sea in space. Yes. That's really yes. what it is. Absolutely. Yeah. It's 20,000 leagues under the sea mated with Forbidden Planet. Yes. Basically. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. But, you know, it's it's funny because, you know, as much as here on our show, you know, we have a running gag about crossing the streams. Don't cross the streams. It would be bad. We really do try to make an effort not to keep talking about Star Wars in our Star Trek episodes and vice versa. But (laughs) it's all tied in, though. It is all tied in. And we are very much fans of both. I don't think that they have to be mutually exclusive. I know that there's a lot of. Warsies and there's a lot of trekkers and the, these guys war with each other but we're we're really I think we're in both camps we love them both but that said as much as I love both I do very much blame if that's the right word blame blame Star Wars for not only for this movie in whatever perception is out there about it but really the whole direction that Star Trek and even most other science fiction went because I right. think really before Star Wars, you had science fiction. After Star Wars, you had science fantasy slash space opera. Yeah, which is what Western Star Trek. Space. Um, yeah, exactly. That's what Star Trek kind of mutated into after Star Trek: The Motion Picture because they they still wanted to feel like Star Trek, but they knew that they had to get a little bit more Star Warsy to keep that crowd, you know, to, to interest that crowd. And so that's why, you know, the battles got bigger and the stories got, you know, more action and, and adventures type of thing. And I w- won't say whether I think that's a good or bad thing. I, I see merits in both, but I do lament the fact that this was the only true science fiction tale we ever got on the yeah. screen. Star Trek, it's Star it's Trek. amazing how, how big of a reach Star Wars has had because you have all that generation that grew up loving star wars and that was their first taste you know and yeah and they always i know you were saying that you love both star wars and star trek and i'm the same way but i find it's more the younger crowd is more into the star wars they they really don't want to give star trek well, a chance i had star trek yeah. for years before star wars so i had that before star wars came along it was all star trek for me right you know, yeah. i couldn't find any other science fiction that measured up at that point right except for the occasional movie at the extreme risk of offending anybody and pissing somebody off, I will say that I think 
the thing with Star Trek, though, because I'm seeing this with my own children right now with my boys, uh-huh. is that, you know, Logan is nine years old, and he's very much like Scotty was just a couple years ago when Dad kicks on Star Trek. He'll generally just kind of either not pay attention to it or he'll outright leave the room. He's yeah. really not interested. But Scotty's now 13, and about two years ago or so, he started to, to watch them with me kind of begrudgingly at first, but he's got to the point now where he sees the merit in it and he starts to enjoy it. And what I think it is is that... It's through you, I'm sure, a lot of it, too. It, it is. That helps. I, I, I think that Star Trek... Gosh, I, I hate to come right out and say it this way, but I think it's a little more adult as far as it, yeah. it's a little bit headier. Yeah. It's a little more – there's a little more meat on the bone per se, <laughs> science fiction-wise anyway, than Star Wars, which is very much just you know ray guns, rocket ships, and robots. Yeah, well, and, you know, and the thing is, Star Trek, and, and especially on you know the, the headier episodes of the original series and, and TNG, it, it requires you, like you say, to pay attention and, and stick with it. Star Wars, you can, any of them, you you can pretty much just start watching it and like, all right, that's cool. Okay, we got something cool going on. Now we got a chase. Now we got, you know, a couple of guys fighting each other. And now we got aliens. And now we got a, a new planet. And now we got this. And now we got that. Because, like you say, it taps into the, the Buck Rogers Flash Gordon old style serial uh, adventure story. It's less, I hate, to, I hate to use the term cerebral because I'm not trying to yeah. put down Star Wars here, but. It's more about what's going on in the sense of the action rather than what the like what the narrative is. Yeah. And I think that's right. always been because my my wife is the same way. My wife, uh, the only Star Trek film she's ever seen is the new one. So we, we watched that this this summer, and and she was amazed that she liked it because she has never watched a, a Star Trek film, never watched a complete episode of Star Trek, just just totally turned off by it just because of. I'm guessing the, the preconceptions that it's all just continuity porn, for lack of a better term, and <laughs> and, uh, and and nerdy stuff. Right. And whereas to me, it's, Star Trek's always been whatever the like like all good science fiction. It's really about the characters and the way that they interact with what's going on around them. And mm-hmm. and truly, that's always to me been one of the strengths. Again, of getting back to the motion picture is that because Roddenberry was involved and because of all the development that went into phase two that was rolled up into this, all these right. characters' voices ring absolutely true. When mm-hmm. when Kirk and Spock and Bones are in the lounge, that rings absolutely true. That's, and that's one of my yeah. favorite right. scenes. Yeah. Yes. So that, that automatically sells the film as being legitimate. And it automatically sells the concept of Star Trek and what this is truly about. Now, there's all sorts of crazy crap going out there with this gigantic 2 or 82, depending on what version of the film you're watching. <laughs> yes. Unit of, of cloud out there, but it all gets grounded back into characters. And it doesn't get grounded back into the next dogfight or the next chase. It gets grounded back. Example of that is, is the line where, you know, on the screen where it's just beginning. I and love that, by the way. Yeah. That is... I'll be I'll be completely honest with you. I posted that on several boards. Uh, I didn't do it on the CGS one. I did I did a different. But on several of the boards I'm on, that was my my signature with the picture of me holding my newborn son. Aww. And it's Aww. so because it encapsulates what the whole basis to me of, of what Roddenberry wanted with Star Trek was to show that we we as hum, as humans possess such capacity for compassion, for love, for understanding, for peacefulness for enlightenment, 
that we could go out amongst the stars and spread this message to anyone and everyone. And to me, that, to, to hold my newborn son, got that same feeling that we can accomplish anything because we possess more capacity than anything under the sun or in the, in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, and plus the whole message of the movie is about the human, the, the need for humanity to, um, to expand I mean, the whole bit with like Beecher, a perfect example is Beecher gathered all knowledge. He was all logic, but he needed humanity to go beyond. Then he needed he needed something, and it's the same thing with Spock. It was all what happened. Beecher as I would for a brother. My yeah. my favorite line yeah. in the whole movie <laughs> is a weird one, but it's in that lounge, and when Kirk just looks at Spock and he goes. Would you please sit down? Sit <laughs> and then down. Spock yeah, sits, and, then, and then Spock sits down. You know, because Spock was just not relating to them, and Kirk was trying. And he goes, sit down, Spock. Sit down, and Spock. Would you please? Sit? And at that point, some, something was broken down, and they started, you know, actually dealing with the problem, and their relationships were, were starting to pick up where they left off. And that's like the moment. It's Kirk, of course, that, that, that generates the moment. But Shatner has, has a couple of lines like that in this movie that I don't know if they made more sense in 1979, but they're hilarious now. Yes. <laughs> I need you both. I need you. Badly. Badly. <laughs> like, you could just hear the Slash writers just pounding away on their iBooks right there. Just, yeah. Uh, you were off. I don't yell. I yell. I yell that at the television sometimes. You know, I noticed that that line is not in this. I don't know which version you watch, but in the director's cut version, they cut it out. And I was, I actually lamented that. That was the. That was, believe it or not, the sole cut that that I actually lamented. I was like, oh, why did they cut? Because I love. I, I like. Let me back up a little bit. I've heard a lot and read a lot of criticism about this movie over the years, and the fact that. It doesn't feel like the old, you know, that they're not as animated. And I think people really want to see Shatner ham it up all the time and act like he did on a lot of the classic episodes. But he really didn't ham it up all the time. I think that's just a popular misconception that he was always way over the top. But the more I watch this one, the more I really do think that the characterizations, at at least of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, are really dead on. Yeah, they're the important yeah, ones. Yeah. But, you know, there are little moments where the TV Kirk, where he would throw a good fit, come through. And that's one of the moments where he tell he gives her an order. You're off. She's all zoned out because she's freaked out by the destruction of Epsilon 9. You're off. So he yells at her. And I, that's classic Kirk, man. <laughs> I love that when he yells at somebody. It's just great. I love that part, but they they did. They cut that one out. I don't know why. The, the other the other cut that's along the same lines for me it, it, it's a little bit different but there's there's a there's a bit it's in the it's in the extended television cut where McCoy talks at length to Kirk about fitness for command and yes. that, and, yeah. and and that that is no longer in the director's cut not the full version of that of that shot and I've been reading the novelization um, in, pre- in preparation for doing this show and uh, Roddenberry puts a lot of emphasis on McCoy and on the role of the ship's doctor to oversee the fitness of the captain. And right. real, the ship's doctor holds the ultimate position of power because he decides if the captain is fit to command or not. 
And, and, and so it was, it was clear that this was an important story beat to Roddenberry. And, and having that removed is a little disappointing to me because I mean, another, thing that, another thing you notice is that McCoy, a lot of times in the second half of the movie, just shows up on the bridge, something happens, and then <laughs> he, he reacts. Re- <laughs> yeah. That's one of my notes is McCoy is constantly on and off the bridge throughout the entire film. That's actually one of my notes. I noticed I, that, I, too. At one point, you're like, damn it, Jim, I'm old. I can't keep doing this. Pop <laughs> me up here, I'll stay here. <laughs> McCoy was always Kirk's conscious. He was his little Jiminy Cricket. Yeah. You know, he was the one that because you, you, you're like you're right. When they cut out that extended part where he goes off on the fitness of command, and you you saw that in the TV series before, it was always his way of well, kind of reeling Kirk back in. You know, even at the beginning when you know he says, "Jim, you're pushing." You know, yeah. uh, let your people do their jobs. Yeah. He's he's always was Kirk's conscious. Spock may have been his intellect, but McCoy was his conscious. He was the one that kind of kept his ego in check, in a sense. And, I always and envisioned a scene where McCoy would be headed back down after you know one of his many many pop <laughs> into the bridge for his second scenes. He'd be headed back down, and those new corridors on the new Enterprise were so narrow and kind of kind of claustrophobic that he purposely trips somebody and they conk their head just so he has something to do, you know, because he's obviously <laughs> bored. You know, there's no no action in sick bay right now, so he causes an accident. <laughs> and plus, he's got the Christine there now. Yeah, well, hey, and actually, two things I noticed about Doctor Chapel in the film and in the novelization. First off, in the opening credits, you'll notice Majel Barrett is credited with the other regulars. She's credited with Koenig That's and Meduin mm-hmm. and, and Michelle Nichols. She's credited with wife. all of them, which I don't think edited that way again in the rest of the series, was she? No. Oh, no. Because well, I mean, know, after this one, she's only in what? She's in four? Yeah, she was in Starfleet headquarters. She was one of the ones when the rain started happening and they were losing everything. Yeah, yeah, she's oh. in that scene, and then she's in... Ah, I thought she was in one other one. I must be thinking of somebody else. That was, that was odd because Janice Rand was not credited. Oh. Grace Lee. Right. Oh, she's not? Grace Lee. No, she is not. It's Dewan and Koenig and Decay and Nichols and I'm forgetting somebody and, and Barrett. <laughs> and, and so I just thought it was funny that she made it in there. She was an important enough character. Obviously, she was going to play a big part in Phase 2 had that gone forward. Right. So she made it in the front end like that. Huh. Uh, the other thing I, I wanted to mention about, about Dr. Chapel is that if you read the novelization, when she gets introduced, and the character is introduced in the novelization, Roddenberry gives her this loving, detailed, super sexy description. Of and course. I can't for the life of me, imagine why he would be doing this. I don't know either. <laughs> It's like, I'm reading this, I'm like, damn it, I gotta go change my pants, I'm hot now. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're you're reading this, and I, I'm really, I'm I'm touched that you're, you're you're reading it just for this show. It's been, it's probably been at least 20 years since I've read the, the book, but I did read it when I, when I really got into this, when I discovered this film as a kid, and I remember reading the book, there were some significant, a, a few significant additions, not too many changes, but maybe you can answer a question I've had for a long time with this movie. Maybe this is in the book if you've gotten this far. There's a line in this movie that kind of drives me a little crazy where they've got the Ilea probe and they take her back to her quarters. Oh, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> it's, it's the scene where Decker 
and Dr. Chapel, Dr. McCoy, and that secure. I think there's a security guard there. Yeah. And Chapel puts that little thing that sensor ring. Whatever, yeah. On yeah, it is. It's like the conehead sensor ring <laughs> on her head, and says. Lieutenant Ilea once mentioned that she wore this, and I've always thought, when, when the hell did she ever mention this to anybody? Sure. She's only been on the ship like an hour and a yeah. half, you know. So there's, I've, in, I, I've actually not at that part, but there's an earlier portion of the. Um, Ilea also gets a very loving description. If you read the novelization, there is sexuality and sensuality all over this thing. Mm-hmm. Gene Roddenberry, man. Yeah, man. Rod, he was he was He's just hot in the blooded. smoking jacket, you know. Yeah. There, there's an, ex- an extended little commentary about how Kirk and Spock were not lovers. I guess just to cut off. Yeah, I, I remember I that. I believe I'm actually talking about Flash Riders twice in one podcast, but when Ilea is, is first mentioned, they talk about her and Decker and their history on, on Delta. And... Uh, they, they talk about how her being completely hairless except for her eyes, and that was more enhanced by her wearing her headdress. No, I just mean the fact that you they've what? known each other longer than they possibly could have, at least from what we're seeing in the movie. So yeah. I'm wondering, was I Leah? A- I can do my little apologist bit here, continuity oh, apologist bit, and explain it all away. What happened was Decker coached nurse chapel ahead of time and said look you know get this thing on her head what's some things that we can do to trigger ilea's consciousness she was just improvising you know oh ilea said she once wore this they just wanted to get it on their head i I, I always took it more as they may have had previous history because i mean if decker and ilea could have previous history what's to say that chapel couldn't have met that's kind of what oh that's that's hot (laughs) (laughs) oh god (laughs) I don't think that's... Keep talking. <laughs> no, keep talking. <laughs> oh, God. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe Decker was trying to get them both in the sack at the same time. It's man. the you future. Know, People, you know, things are different in the future. We just had a whole conversation about something very similar to this. So let's just, let's just go ahead and move on, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I don't... I don't. I, I wanted to touch on one other thing, but you haven't got there in the book yet, so I don't. I'm not. I'm not going to spoil it for you. But uh, just keep in mind that you know one of Roddenberry's big things that he was always trying to do, both in the original series and then what was that show he had, Chris Earth? What was it, Earth Two or something? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, I know. I I, I watched Genesis the or Genesis Two or something, something like, like yeah. that. I think it was Genesis Two. Yeah. You know, he finally fulfilled it. Was on was on Star Trek: The Next Generation. I'll just I'll just tease that that there there is a scene like that in in this uh, in this in the book for this. Oh, I wanted to go back for a moment. We were talking a little bit before about McCoy and, and the scenes he has with Kirk and all that. And I want to get your guys' thoughts on this. I, I don't want to talk too much about you know the other films, but one of the things that always jumps out to me a lot between you know because I really got into Star Trek through Star Trek 2. So, you know, I saw 2 before I saw this one, and it maybe that's why this stands out to me more, but it seems like McCoy has a total reversal on his position about Kirk and reassuming command, because in this one, he's very much like, you wormed your way back in, and he's, he doesn't seem real happy about it, yet in the yeah. next movie, 
he's really after Kirk to, you know, you're never going to be happy until you're back on the bridge of the Enterprise kind of thing. And I, I just uh, wonder... Maybe he learned something in this one about that. Maybe he was, at the beginning, he was skeptical about it. And then at the end, he was like, nope, this is where Kirk belongs. There, there's a, a lot of, again, going back to the novelization, it, it really helps you get into Rodden, where Roddenberry's head was at with writing or coming up with some of the, the, the concepts here. It goes into almost, you know, too much detail about how unhappy Kirk realizes he was while he was behind the desk. And mm-hmm. that basically he was manipulated by Starfleet, and that Nogura basically set him up to be this legend and set him up with Laurie Siani to take care of him and all this other stuff, and that he didn't realize how much he missed it and how much he had changed and how unhappy he truly was un- until he got this back. They also touched upon that in those, in those the Lost Year novels. Yeah, they same thing. They that how he was sort of tricked into this, and so he was sort of like promised a ship. Just do this, you know. We can't have you sitting around doing nothing while the Enterprise is being refit. And McCoy was the one in those books who was saying, "Don't do it, don't do it. You know, you'll regret it. You're, this is your best destiny to be a starship captain, that kind of thing." So, I, yeah, I kind of in took fact, a I believe in the novelization they they say that the only time. That Kirk didn't seriously consider McCoy's advice was when McCoy told him not to take the death job. There's yeah. something along those lines in the novel. Yeah. And, and going back to what you were saying earlier, Scott, I, I took it as sort of like just McCoy just busting Kirk's balls. Just as this is the way to get at him, saying, you know, look, you're you know, you're wormed your way to you know, trying to emphasize how much how he's sort of out of control, that how he's he's letting his emotions dictate, you know, his better judgment. You know, you you know that you know you shouldn't be doing this. You and then he just using that as a sort of a shot at him, sort of like to snap him back into reality, much like he's done so many other times when he did that with um, with Spock. He would insult him to try to get his point across. So um, th- that's the way I sort of took it. I mean, that I mean that's just me, but that's that's how I saw it. Yeah, well, insults seem to be one of the ways to elicit an emotional response from Spock, or, or at least from any kind of portrayals yeah, of like his childhood yeah, and the cartoon and stuff. You know, yeah, he can't get rid of that humanity, you know, and if you, you get under his skin enough, he'll snap out of whatever kind of, you know, Vulcan funk he's in. <laughs> Which would make for probably some interesting music, some Vulcan funk. But, Vulcan you know. funk, yeah. <laughs> Somebody can sample him playing the Vulcan harp and put some breakbeats on it. Let me get my lyre out right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that off the air, you know, Chris Gallo and I had, had both talked about the fact that the comic book adaption, the the Marvel Comics adaption, is uh, is has a couple significantly different scenes than in the movie too. In in that lounge scene that we were talking about earlier, that's the one that always jumps out to me as being really different than the film. And actually, I think it actually plays a little bit better somehow in the the adaption. As much as I like it in the film, there's actually a moment where. McCoy kind of snaps and, and jumps down Spock's throat about the fact that he was trying to purge his human half. And he says, uh, my God, Spock, even if you achieve perfect logic, you'll pay a price. It's given your planet peace, but no art, no music, no poetry. And that seems very much a, a real Dr. McCoy line, a real Dr. Yeah. McCoy concern that it's, it's by achieving that total logic, he, he's taken any any real anything out of his life, any any chance to enjoy his life. And that is echoed later on after the Spock walk, after Spock mind melds with Beecher, and he says that Beecher's achieved 
perfect logic, but has no joy, has no mm-hmm. art, has, and he goes on. I'm, I'm not sure in the exact line. And I, and I think it's interesting because the comic adaption does not have the Spock walk in it. It was written from an obviously an earlier script that still had the memory wall. And oh, that's right. Wall, which is a little bit different than the Spock walk. So maybe if in the original take with the memory wall, McCoy would have had those lines instead of Spock. Hmm. That's true. That's, that's true. I didn't even catch that. Intent, and then yeah. they, they switched to Spock when they, when they did the, the Spock walk instead. That's an excellent point. And you know, I didn't... I'm flipping through my... Uh, I've got the little paperback version, the Marvel Comics Illustrated version that has it in there, and I didn't even catch that. So the interesting thing to me always about the memory wall, the memory wall takes on this kind of mythic aspect of, oh, this was supposed to be so amazing. Then I read the adaption, and you get the description of the scene, and it seems kind of bland with the the little memory bits and the probes, you know, sealing Kirk to the wall, and then Spock's got to break them out, and they, they go through. I mean, it was, it was, it's a, it's a good-looking set from the images we have of it. But what replaced the memory wall, the, the Spock walk, to me, is my absolute favorite sequence of the film. Yeah, I Just really like that, the too. The long of all the crazy visuals that Spock yeah. has seen. That, to me... This, this puts it on the level of, again, approaching what a, a true science fiction. It reminds me completely of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. And Which it, actually so does the black yeah. hole. Yeah, the very end of the black hole is right. Yeah, I found that I found that sequence of the book, and it's not so much that there's not a Spock walk, is that they both go together, like you say, they go through the memory wall, and Kirk gets attacked by the bits, and Spock saves him, and then they both go on the journey together, and there's a lot of conversation, and then Spock kind of does his mind meld, but Kirk's right there the whole time, and you're right, I think that's very much a Jaws, the shark didn't work, so we have to do something different kind of thing, where it actually works better that the Kirk moment with the bits didn't get filmed, and that Spock goes in solo, I I agree with you, I think that makes for a lot more dramatic effect and it, it just looks beautiful the whole sequence of him going deep into the ship and, and trying to the mind meld and all that i love well, that also, whole sequence it yeah. also sets a precedent for star trek 2 for spock to just sort of go off on his own to to save the moment knowing that i've got to do this whether somebody's gonna let me or not so he just goes ahead and does it but it also it more plays into the story the way it's written right yeah yeah, because of right now, at this point, Spock is pretty much a loner. I mean, he is not interacting with at all, hardly at all with anybody. So it makes more sense for him to kind of go off on his own. In fact, McCoy yeah. was a, in a scene in, the, in, the, in his office was saying, can you trust him? Because especially with all the things that was going on, how Absolutely. he acted. So it sort of fits a lot better than him and Kirk going, and going, to, the, going to the wall. Absolutely. Uh, I was thinking the same thing when Chris said that. I I didn't want to disagree with him because I I, I see where he's going. But yeah, in this, I I like it so much better because in in 2, he does strike off on his own and he's doing it very much to save the crew and it's, it's a selfless act. Where in this, I think even though he's going off by himself and doing it alone, I think it's a selfish act. Yeah, I think, I think he's yeah, going, you're right. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very. It, it then becomes very poignant because he does achieve his enlightenment. He he touches, the he touches V'ger's consciousness and he discovers pure logic, and it upsets him so much that he becomes more like the Spock we remember. He starts to re, he starts to move away from wanting to achieve Kolinar in the scene in the sick bay, and he says, you know, right. this, this fulfilling V'ger cannot comprehend, and you can and you can and Nimoy sells it so well. 
He Ugh. puts it over so well. The the simple feeling of just human contact that you know Viger and and True Logic can never replicate. Right. Yeah, it's almost like a I, glimpse into the future for him, seeing what it would be like if he had abandoned all emotions. I think this really plays in well to the continuity-wise, the last appearances we get of Spock in, say, Unification, where he has the moment with Data, where I always got the feeling from that scene that Spock was finally at peace with both of his halves, that he'd, he'd basically reconciled his human and Vulcan halves and, and had kind of learned that he could embrace the Vulcan way, but being half-human wasn't dirty either. And I think that really owes a lot to what happens here, you know, that he's, he's on that path to trying to reconcile the two rather than one trying to, to win the war, you know, and, and quash the other one. And I don't know that that always comes through with, with every subsequent appearance of, of Spock after this. Sometimes he almost comes off a little too jokey or a little weird to me. But in this one, you know, it really does owe to that eventual Spock that we see by, by the end of Spock's career and, and well, in the end of his lifetime, really. Oh, that was the conversation killer right there. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit too heady for this group. Wow. We started talking a little bit about V'ger, and, and V'ger to me was always, that, that's what uh, really sold me on, on this film in general and what made me such a big fan is the, the whole mysterious concept of this bizarre cloud in space that nobody knows what this thing is, and they can't scan it, and they have no concept, and when they get inside that this massive thing that is big enough to house a solar system, and, and it's, you never get a full, you never see it all in one shot, and you never right. really get a full idea of, of what it looks like. In the director's cut, you get a little bit better idea. They've added an effect shot right. uh, as V'ger approaches Earth, that you get a pretty good glimpse of V'ger, but before then, you never had. It was always just this mysterious thing. Why is any object we don't understand always called a thing? You know, not not to ape the McCoy line from before, and uh, <laughs> and that combined with the blaster beam sounds and the whiplash energy, and actually V'ger's plasma bolts are referred to repeatedly in the novelization and the comic adaptation as whiplash. So mm-hmm. clearly Roddenberry liked the idea of the whiplash effect, and that to me was that. Did no no, uh, for lack of a better term, villain in any of the Star Trek films, even Khan, ever approached this level of uniqueness, I guess is the word. No, nothing ever approached this mm-hmm. level of complexity, of, of something we had never seen before. And, and then to have this, this amazing twist at the end was just like one of those whoa things. What do you guys think about the theory, just go off on a little tangent here, the theory that V'ger fell into the Borg homeworld? I was going to bring that, that up was, too. I, I was going to bring that up. I've always thought that I was like this could be the beginning of the Borg. It's the it's an acquisitive machine intelligence, and then it mixes with a with a person, and that could have very well gone off and became the Borg later on. I always thought they might tie that in at some point somehow. I always hope well, so, it, hope it has would. been unofficially. Roddenberry is on record somewhere in some interview joking about. Shortly after the first Borg episode on Next Gen, the Q-Who episode, that the planet seen by Spock, when he did his mind mail, you know, when he did his his Spock walk, 
before the mind meld might have been the the Borg planet, you know, the Borg homeworld. If you ever read, I think it's the second Shatner novel. It was called The Return. Mm-hmm. There's a part where Spock is attacked by the Borg and they're going to assimilate him. And he's actually saved from being assimilated when they realize that he has already mind melded with V'ger. And it turns out that that is, is protection from him. They already consider him part of the collective that, because they did have a hand in V'ger. Somehow they were the ones that had retrofitted V'ger and sent it back to Earth. I thought that was brilliant. I mean, yeah. it's not necessarily in continuity because I don't think any of the novels yeah. are considered so canon really or what, but it's, right. yeah, it's brilliant. I, I really liked that novel for that re- I mean it's a great book anyway but I, that just put it over the top for me I thought that was really cool tying that all back into uh, to this movie yeah plus they had that simple description of the planet you know a planet of li- uh, living machines could you could you get a or simpler description of the Borg or what the Borg, Borg homeworld would be like that's um, true I never really bought into that, and for for one reason, and, and a lot of this deals with that I didn't watch Next Generation regularly until towards the end. So I never really saw the Borg all that much because they kind of show up towards the middle of the series more than they do at the end. Right. And 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 so the main difference to me that I never really bought into that was that Viger, for all its destructive power, was not a malicious entity. V'ger was a child. It didn't know any better, whereas the Borg are definitely malicious. And so I, I guess it's kind of a, a, a logical leap for me to go from V'ger that really just wanted to learn and to know its place amongst the universe to the Borg who are all-conquering. And, and I guess it's not that big of a leap when you're dealing with, you know, pure logic and machines, but look, I never really wanted that. Look at Anakin Skywalker, man. I like that is threat, but V'ger <laughs> is, not, a, is not, a, not malicious. Vijra is a threat because it, uh, there's a quote from uh, Inoshiro Honda, one of the creators of Godzilla, who says that a monster's tragedy is that they are born too tall, too heavy, too strong. And it's not their fault that they're born this way. And, and Vijra fits that description. It's not his, it's yep. not his fault that it, it doesn't know any better how to, how to deal with the cosmos. It knows to learn and to you know, record and absorb. It doesn't know that it's digitizing uh, carbon units. It doesn't know that it's killing them. It's just it's doing what it knows how to do. Whereas the Borg is definitely malicious intent with the way that they go about their business. But is it really malicious? Because they're, all they really want to do is improve themselves. They prove each other, prove themselves by bringing in they other races, other parts. Sense and, and, of, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and, and you're, you're right. But I've always, that was more... I think they established that a little bit better on the kind of in the earlier Borg episodes, and especially Best of Both Worlds. Whereas, again, later towards the end, and then getting into Voyager, they were used as kind of just heavy. You know what I'm right. saying? And I think that I think that influences my my thought process. I, I totally agree with you that if you if you look at the way that their arc develops, the Borg don't believe they're acting. They, they believe they're acting in the universe's best interest. But the way that they were handled later doesn't necessarily jive with that. First Contact mm-hmm. is a real good film, but that's that to me is malicious. If we're going to go back and change history, just to screw with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think Remove it is. Roadblock, you know, yeah. I'll be honest. I don't really have a, a definite opinion one way or the other. I think it's an interesting theory. I don't know if if I'd like it or dislike it. If if it was ever made canon or or dismissed from canon, but I do think it's interesting that uh, 
during the part where they're they're first encountering Vidra and they're first working their way inside, Spock does say the line, resistance would be futile. Any show of resistance would be futile, Captain. I, I think that's I think that's very interesting. <laughs> I, yeah, I, w- I always wondered if that was a deliberate reference or if just a coincidence. I, I think it's just a remarkable coincidence. I, you know, I don't think the Borg were even a twinkle in, in Roddenberry right. or anybody else's eye at that point, but I still think it's really... Was, was when, the, when the line was written in Next Generation, was it a callback to ah. uh, resistance would be futile? And now they're, they're saying it straight out, that resistance is futile. <laughs> I, I think it's more like, hey, that's a great line. I want to use yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you see that in comics, though, too. You know, anytime... Spider-Man fights Dr. Octopus or something, you know, or resistance is futile, Spider-Man, you will die or whatever, so yeah, I, th- I think it's a great line, but I think it's also a generic villain line, too. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you will like, roll the day, you know, that kind of line. Yep. I, you know, I, I've, I've, lived, I've lived for 29 years, I've never rooed a single day in my life, so I don't know <laughs> I don't know what that is. Oh, don't was. worry. Oh, don't worry, they're coming. <laughs> <laughs> We've mentioned several times that we're talking about the. Uh, it's actually I th- I keep calling it the director's cut, but on the on the DVD it's actually called the director's edition, and and this is a little bit. I think it's special amongst director's cut style remakes or or editions or whatever because he really did take an active hand in this and he really did work very hard with all of the the new effects people involved to really finish what he'd considered for a long time to be an unfinished product and i you know i, I know that there's a lot of other so-called director's cuts and things that that claim that but i think this is really the truest one uh, of where a director really has regretted and lamented for a long long time that they couldn't go back and kind of finish what was rough and the things that they they felt that they had to kind of rush through to get the thing out on time and all that and so this one really i just i really feel that with this one it doesn't just seem like some sort of ploy or gimmick or whatever it really feels true and honest especially you know if you listen to the uh to the commentary with him and you know learn more about the the backstory of the director's edition but i I just wanted to kind of talk about that for a minute what do you guys think of of this particular uh, edition of the new effects and just all the uh the additions and some of the slight changes and refinements oh i I, I love this i love this version of this film i a couple of years ago i got the opportunity to watch this film watch this version of with my father-in-law who was a Star Trek fan from back in the day, and he had not seen he had not seen this film since it came out, and he was amazed by how how much uh, the, the the pacing was improved, how good the effects looked, things of that nature. One one aspect of the director's edition that I'm really impressed with is that there was an active effort made to not just put in new effects for the sake of putting in new effects. Like I think a lot of people, myself included, think we're done with the special edition of the original Star Wars trilogy. Amen, brother. There's there's two there's two effects that really stand out to me, and have stood out to me since the first time I saw the director's edition. I just rewatched the film last night, and I made note of these two scenes again. The first is when the Enterprise first enters the cloud, and Vijer hits it with the plasma bolt, and then and he sends then Vijer sends out the second plasma bolt while Spock is about to transmit the friendship message. The plasma bolt 
you know, you get the exterior shot of the bolt traveling from the cloud to the Enterprise, and it just kind of fizzles away. It's, it's very subtle, but it, it, it's not like on the old one where it was obviously just like a, it was a light effect, whereas this, it really has mass to it, and it's just gone. It, it, it's, a, it's only, like I said, it's only about a one-half-second shot, but it really sold the effect and looked authentic, and that is a very effective scene for that nature. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a binary type of yeah. attack, so to speak. Right. The other scene is much more uh, important, and that's the walk, the walk to V'ger. Yes. With the stones being created out of data, yes, and the, yes. uh, with the with the little beams of, of light creating the stones to the saucer section, so they can walk to V'ger. What's interesting about that is that that was all done with CG, but the uh, an effort was made to make it look like it was done with hand animation. So every other frame was taken out, so that's why it looks authentic. It looks like something that would have been done in 1979 because it was a you know a, a desire to make it look. Uh, like it was there originally, like up. it was contemporary. Yeah, yeah so yeah. it would and take now, you out of the scene. scene with the with the stones with, with the, the stones coming up out of nothingness, and then the full pan around shot where you see that absolutely nothing is supporting them. Man, that that to me is one of the most breathtaking shots in the entire Star Trek mythos, right there, because yeah. that puts right. over that this truly is a an entity that is in its own realm God. It can create. <laughs> anything it can destroy anything but it doesn't know what it is it just knows that i've got to get these people here so i got to create something out of nothing i'm creating matter from thought essentially from data and so that those, those two effect shots really to me are indicative of the kind of care that was put into creating this direct yeah. edition which uh, i agree is, is not always the case with a lot of these uh, director's cuts and special editions that you see especially in the age yeah. of dvd here well, they, they want to show off it, what they can do. Yes. See, that's and one of the things that impresses me just as much as the fact of the, the special effects, the new stuff in this blends so seamlessly oh. in this as it does not in the Star Wars special editions. But the other thing, and I think it's very subtle, but you guys know me if you listen to the show. I'm very anal retentive about things like this. I don't like my beloved things toyed with. And when Superman, the movie special edition DVD came out, they didn't toy with it too much. But one of the things they did with that that drives me nuts is they went back in and they toyed a lot with the sound effects in that movie. And I don't know if people notice it, but I notice it. It jumps right out and smacks me every time I watch that, which is one of the reasons I really don't watch that version very much. But they did that in this movie. Not mm -hmm. only is there new sound effects and a lot of, or excuse me, special effects and a lot of things cleaned up, there's also a lot of new sound effects in this. But again, the same way that they made the new special effects blend and look like they really could have been filmed in 79 originally the sound effects that were added to this don't jump out and smack me i noticed them because i've listened to the movie a thousand times but i think anybody watching this for the first time it's not going to jump out and smack them as this is new added for for surround sound it's i think it's going to blend seamlessly and they're not even going to notice that's brilliant to me i love that especially the way like for, for me that always was most really annoying in the original version that they altered was the red alert sound yes they, they, they blended in the old original series with the what was in that in that in the first movie 
right. and it made it a hybrid. But in right. that, when you first saw that in the movie, that was just the most annoying thing I ever. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, God, I right. hated that. Yeah, Everybody, exactly. Well, the other yeah. thing that I, I will give them huge, huge praise for in this is my number one beef with the Star Wars special editions. Beyond the fact of the of the, all the new stuff in that, I think jumps right out and smacks you that hey, this is new and it doesn't blend. Along with that is the fact of, again, having seen those movies a thousand times, every little flaw and gaff and blooper and everything in those movies that that winds up on screen i i see it and when i watch them now i can't unsee it and it drives me crazy that george lucas would go in and add rontos and shit but he wouldn't fix anything that was wrong one of the things that that's in this that i love that they did and it's so subtle but i really enjoyed it is if you guys are really familiar with the longer special edition TV version that's out there, it was on videotape for a long time, mm-hmm. you probably never saw this because that that's not in widescreen. To my knowledge, that edition's never been released in widescreen because it was made specifically for television. I've actually I've got that sitting downstairs and it is pan and scan. Yes. Now, now there's a scene in there in the original movie now if you've got the original theatrical version in widescreen i'm sure this shot is in there but a lot of people don't watch that version because it's not the longer special edition but anyway there's a shot where kirk and scotty are in the shuttle pod and they come up and they go alongside the port side of the enterprise they do the long circle around the front of the space dock and then they go in straight looking at the enterprise now, as they're, they're coming around that port side of Space Dock, about to tr- make that turn, there's a really beautiful shot of the Space Dock, to us, from our perspective, seems to drift back to the right of the screen, and the Earth is in the background. In the widescreen original shot of that, you can actually see a portion of Earth's cloud cover come over a piece of the scaffolding. So it really looks for all the world like this scaffold just lopped Mm -hmm. off like a mountain or something on the earth. (laughs) They fix that in this. And it's such a little thing that, I mean, nobody notices that. And nobody but a geek like me who watches it over and over and over notices that, but they fixed it. And I love it. That's the care and detail that went into this. It's beautiful. I, I got I to gotta disagree with you. That was been the standard joke amongst my friends about this movie, about the scaffolding. Everybody I knew had seen that and laughed about it and brought it up whenever <laughs> whenever I would talk about this movie and how much I loved it. Yeah, but at least this one did. At least this one didn't have the scaffolding in, in the background. Like, yeah, okay, okay, I'll give you that. I was wondering if anybody would mention that because, yeah, I agree with you. I, I love that. The, the classic shot on the television version with uh, Spock beginning the Spock walk when you got like the rigging and every and the yes, yeah. visible. <laughs> yes. Now, see, with with digital effects these days, that that's actually I forgot about that. That's one portion I kind of wish that they had put into this version if they could fix it. You know, if they could add in. Digitally, I don't think it would be any problem at all to, to real quick go in and, and mat all that in. I'm kind of yeah. surprised they didn't. But it is funny to watch that version. That 
particular shot was not added was I'm not sure if the widescreen elements exist for it. Oh, that's but a good point. Yeah. If it only because that was I mean because like I said that would only exist in a you know in a full screen format. They would have had to kind of remat the shot, and I'm not sure if that would have would have worked right or not. Because you're right, because it, it's a it's a it's an interesting shot. I mean, had it been completed, it would have been very nice with him coming away. And they have similar shots to that, but not the exact same one like they do in the television version. I mean, how hilarious is that, though? That 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 shot, and a lot of I'm just always surprised by how many people don't catch it. That I mean, <laughs> other than Kirk. And the door behind him, everything else is just rigging on a set. It's hilarious. Because <laughs> the very first time I saw it, I was like, wait a minute, that shot's not even finished. But <laughs> I, I was watching it with my kids and they didn't catch it. I was like, wow, really? You don't see that? It's almost like he's, he's doing an EVA off of the Cygnus from the black hole, you know, with all the black <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned the, the shot of the, the, the pan around the space dock and you see the shot of Earth and using the full 235 frame. Um, one of the notes I wrote down last night was big set, big spaces, big yes. crowds, big shots. Yes. And, and, and I put all very 70s after that. And, yes. and to me, I, I think that, that's another aspect of the motion picture that gets you lose watching it on the small screen. You lose the idea of the the big massive sets with the being extended with the, the matte paintings to give them more depth. You miss the, the, the full effect of these huge spaces like the rec room. You, you miss oh. the, the, the big shots that are clearly designed to be watched on a, on, on a, on a theater screen and not, not even on like, you know, an HDTV. It's not the same effect. And yeah. these were all very 70s, especially the late 70s ideas in blockbuster filmmaking. Today we talk about films having sequences, but back in the 70s it was about shots. Yeah. And the Star Trek The Motion Picture and The Black Hole, again, this is another similarity between them, is that all of their memorable bits are shot and not sequences. That's yeah. true. We, you're reading Remember, off my notes here, Luke. You know, you're stealing my lines <laughs> here because that's exactly what I was talking about, this, uh, the cinematic feel of this movie. Even in the simplest shots, like the, all those shots in the bridge where you see the entire bridge. I yeah. mean, you see every crewman. You see, you see things like that. The the wide shots, yeah. Um, the the shots of Viger, the uh, Epsilon Nine, um, Enterprise. It's just like, oh, they're just the three, just, the just three take... on cruisers. Everybody forgets about them at the beginning. Oh, that, right. I mean, yeah, is, yeah. That was the first time we saw the new Klingon style ships. That was the first time we saw the new Klingon. Mm. And it's in this beautiful widescreen shot, and with the with the the, the motion control shot, where the camera yeah. goes over the top. Yeah, it's the like rollover music. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, Let me yeah. ask you. You know, I, I know that a, a lot of theaters, especially like in the summertime or what, they'll have little marathons or little special events where you know sometimes they'll they'll get a classic movie and replay it like uh, i know superman the movie a few years ago played at a, a theater in atlanta you know just any any classic maybe the godfather or something like that will come around to a local theater and have you know maybe a one-day engagement or something I wonder what we could do to ever get Star Trek the motion picture back up on the big screen because I've I've never seen it on the big screen oh. and I would be thrilled yeah. to pieces to see this in a theater. Move to I, Rochester. I, I <laughs> <laughs> they play it every once. You're missing out. You can, yeah, we have the Eastman collection of movies here. Pretty much every movie that was ever put on celluloid is in a heat and humidity controlled bunker about half a mile from my house, and they regularly show. 
They'll have whole. They'll do all six movies, you know, in two weekends. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine going to work for the week between those two weekends? You wouldn't get anything done. <laughs> you, uh, you, I can watch, talk. you watch motion picture Rathacon and search for Spock on the big screen Then you gotta wait a week yeah. What the hell with that a, a few years ago they did all Six in one day Or oh, man. Ooh, no, no Just slightest pauses between each movie For bathroom breaks and you know To get, get more um, goodies From the snack bar but I, I unfortunately Didn't go to when that happened a friend of mine did He says it was just total sensory overload. You just like at the end of the one, you're like, you're totally exhausted and you're rubbing your eyes and you're like, you want it to be over, but you don't want it to be over. But, <laughs> you know, but uh, he says at the end, he was getting a little punch drunk. You know, he's just like, you know, people started shouting out, talking back to the screen because everybody there, of course, obviously has seen every movie at least a dozen times. And um, it was sort of like sort of like a sci-fi version of Rocky Horror, you know, yeah. <laughs> pretty bad. <laughs> I can see uh, that. Well, we're hitting that uh that one hour mark for uh for this segment, so I'll just uh I'll, I'll get final thoughts. I'll go with you first, uh Chris Gallo. Uh final thoughts on Star Trek the Motion Picture Director's Edition? Oh, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Uh I highly recommend it to anybody and Scott, you got to see it on the big screen. You do yourself a favor. You won't regret it. If you have to drive, uh, you know, a couple of hours to go see it, go see it. <laughs> I definitely want to. Believe me, if I if I ever see it playing anywhere within easy driving distance, I'm definitely going to do it. You got to find out where they have revival houses in Atlanta. And yeah. Just like go to go to their website regularly. Luke, oh, I wanted to add one more one more thing, and that is. One of my favorite scenes in this entire film is after V'ger uh, absorbs the uh, Klingon ships and they get the shot at Epsilon 9 where they say the cloud is heading for Earth, there is a fanfare on the soundtrack which is absolutely awesome. It is the... I wish I could get that when I walk into a room. That's all I got to say. Oh, yeah. Um, as for the director's edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture, if you haven't seen the motion picture since the original version, if you're not a Star Trek fan, if maybe you're starting to get into Star Trek from the new film, do yourself a, a big favor, rent this one from Netflix, throw it on the uh, on the HDTV, and just give yourself some, some time to think about what you're going to watch and think about what you've watched after you watched it. All I've got to say about Star Trek The Motion Picture is that the human adventure is just beginning. Yeah, well said. Oh, that's excellent. That's brilliant. You guys are naturals, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. You guys want a show? <laughs> it's cheap, <laughs> man. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, uh, Adam, your love of Agamotto from the uh, from the board is a good friend of mine. We've always talked about getting a podcast, but then you know, I got married, and then he got a job, and that that it all went to hell after that. <laughs> it can be done. I'll do it. Hey, you are welcome any, any time, and I mean that. I mean, if you ever got a something you want to talk about or review or you got an axe to grind or anything, man, just give me a holler. I mean, you, I'll give you all the time you want. <laughs> One quick thing. I got to ask this about, okay, we've got this world of living machines that's smart enough to build this incredible machine for this 20th century Earth probe to become God. They couldn't pick up a freaking rag and wipe off the rest of the name. <laughs> yeah. 
Or they couldn't see through. They couldn't have some sort of technology that would see through the little piece of car- film of carbon that's over it. Yeah, laziness. It just goes to show that even godlike living machines can still slack off. That there's still some. There's still there's still that that machine at the job that just all the other machines hate him and he's just like yeah, he, I don't know he, he just the, sort of went over there and yeah the temp just went over and just wiped the beginning and the end of it off and said there it is V'ger <laughs> they got all the rest of the information off off the whole thing but yeah. n- neglected that <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> okay anyway so, uh, you have well, a, you uh, have some sort of Star Trek role playing game that. Oh yeah, I want to. Yeah, I want to make an open invitation to all your listeners and to you guys to come join us on um, Star Trek: The Second Fleet online uh, website. It's a role-playing online forum. Everybody's welcome to join. You create a character. You create a backstory for your character. You become a member of one of the crews, and you go from there. We have episodes that run about two weeks, and you get an outline what we want to accomplish in this episode, and Unless you're like the main star of it, of that episode, you get to, uh, you have a lot of fun. You can do what you want, and you interact with all of the members on the forum. It's a lot, a lot, a lot of fun. It, uh, it's hard to explain, but it's all role-playing. It's all done in post, so um, you don't have to have any special equipment. If you've got a computer and you have online access to uh, the Internet, you're ready to go. <laughs> we have a lot of characters on our role-playing forum. We've got... Uh, Bajorans, we got Betazoids, Vulcans, Andorians, Humans, Orions. Oh my, you know, we got the whole lot. Uh, we even got uh, one person who's one quarter Klingon. So <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Um, and uh, like I said, it's, it's open to everybody. You know, come on, log, uh, register, and then just kind of go to it. We'll, they'll assign you to a ship. You know, you can pick, help pick your position. You know, what do you want to go into science? You want to go into tactical? You name it. And then they'll find a place for you and, and just start going. And um, like I said, it's open to everybody to um, join. Just go on to um, secondfleetonline.com slash forum slash index dot php and register and, and go from there. And then you and cook it like with I gas. Says, I want to invite... Oh yeah, like I said, we we have a lot of fun, um, and you never have to worry about how how much you post. You know, you can, yeah, sure. The more you post, the more fun you're gonna have. But we all realize that um, people have lives out, outside of the internet, so <laughs> you know, you got you got to pay your bills, Some you got to see the family and stuff like that. Yeah. Some of us, um, and much like the comic forums, it's a really good place. Uh, people are just here to have fun. No one's here to um, go around and make life live in hell for other members and stuff like that or people acting like they're god on on star trek and do whatever the heck they want we all kind of play by the same rules we play nice i guess that's probably the best way of putting it the people who run this forum uh they've done a great job of keeping it really friendly and really open cool so no cues running around cues and kirks the whole <laughs> universe full of cues and kirks it's like firemen and cowboys and ballerinas Every exactly. A, a green you know? slave girl. Every guy's Kirk or, you know. <laughs> well, we got a green slave. She's not a slave girl, but she's a member of our uh, of one of the sh- sh- crews. In fact, the latest episode sort of revolves around her and how um, I'm not, I'm not she's sort of uh, driving the men crazy. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I, I really can't stress that enough. I, I want to see more people uh, join it because you know I'm having fun and I you guys would have fun too. And hey, 
special for this podcast. You log on after the day after this airs, you can play V'ger. <laughs> <laughs> Your posts are just... But remember, keep in character, you're only a child. V'ger is a child. I suggest you treat yourself. All right, well, good. It's You guys have been, like, buying me time because I have this stupid old Star Trek computer here that randomly generate the numbers, and I just got it started up. So... Ooh, number 56. That's the next episode we're doing. If is Spock's brain. Spock's brain. Oh, shit. My brain hurt. You random number generator. You die. It was bound to happen. sound, Scott? The sad trombone. ratings plummeting. Yeah, it's the sad trombone. <laughs> the guy's not busy for the next show. I'm sorry, I can't help you. Oh, yeah, I gotta sing. I gotta go. It's okay. We got a good, so- we got a good sound bite for that show that we can just pound into the ground. And we will, too. That's the reason you should listen. I <laughs> will see you guys next time. When it's Spock's brain. (laughs) In the next episode, Spock mysteriously has his brain stolen. Why is it an advanced race? Is it not an advanced race? But who cares? Because you get to see the Lobot Spock. That's it's all about the Lobot Spock. It's all about the the RC Spock. <laughs> with Dr. McCoy with his RC plane remote control walking Spock around. Oh. Dance, Spock, dance. That was a merchandising walk right there. Your own radio control missile Spock. Oh, yes, exactly. yeah. Why did they have that? Migo, what's up? Oh, I'm going to sue Migo for not doing that. Who's going to join me? It'll be a class action lawsuit. All right. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll bid goodbye to our guests and tell them how lucky they are for dodging the bullet of not being on the next episode and being on this episode. Scott and I will take, we'll take the next one for the team. Don't you guys worry. We appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us for this very special episode, folks. Your time and attention to listen to us each and every week is very much appreciated. It's Movie Marathon Month all September long with two true freaks. Join us or face the wrath of Darth Vader. We got a learning disability here. Two True Freaks is now a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. Be sure to drop by the network at www.comicspodcast.com. Check out their ton of other fine podcasts and be sure to tell them that Two True Freaks sent you. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com where you can download all of our episodes and find our forum to openly and freely discuss topics from this and all other episodes with us and your fellow listeners. twotruefreaks.libsyn.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libsyn, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. You can email us directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to the Two True Freaks podcast. 
Future Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U. We need to acknowledge an unfortunate mistake that I made and one of the teases we bring to you before this program. While we were live, just after 10 o'clock, I said a word. The fuck are you doing? That many people find offensive. I'm truly sorry. It was a mistake on my part, and I sincerely apologize.